Greetings, friends. Welcome back to Critically Acclaimed, the film review podcast where we have a sound effect at the beginning. There it is. Uh, what a classy sound effect. I liked that one. Thank you. My name is Whitney Seibold. I am a film critic. I contribute to Slash Film. I uh, write an awful lot over there. With me, as always, is the uh, resplendently intelligent and far more talented than I. William, why don't you introduce yourself? Uh, my name is William Bibiani, and I contribute the sound effects. Thank you. Yeah. No, I'm a writer for, uh, I, I review films for The Wrap. Uh, I write a little bit for Consequence as well. And everybody calls me Bibbs. And uh, this week on the critically acclaimed podcast, we're reviewing a bunch of new movies because that's what we do. And we're reviewing the following films. Halloween Ends. I'll believe well, it when I see well, yeah, it. Well, will it? Yeah. Will, will it? Uh, we'll find out. <laughs> uh, Claire Denise stars at noon. Uh, Chanwook Park's Decision to Leave, Dario Argento's Dark Glasses, and, uh, actually I forget who directs this one, uh, the new uh, Hulu rom-com Rosaline, uh, yes. which is about uh, the, uh, uh, the the woman that Romeo was dating before he met Juliet. But That's all very modern, but uh, yes. Uh, yes, we'll uh, talk about it. We will talk about that, and uh, boy, boy howdy, will we. On this podcast, because that's how podcasts work. It'd be, it'd be, I'd love to do a podcast where we just stare at you awkwardly. To be, just it, trust us, we're doing it. I would love the John Cage podcast to know. just be... He's an experimental musician. He has oh, a okay. piece of music called 433, and it's 4 minutes and 33 seconds of silence. Oh, just anyone can do that. He came out and he sat at a piano and did not play for 4 uh, minutes and 33 seconds. I can do that at home. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but you didn't record it and put it out on a record. <laughs> John Cage did, and he's the he's the genius. Oh, God. Uh, but yeah, uh, some uh, celebrity directors, I suppose, big sure. big names uh, this week. Uh, why don't we start with Halloween thirteen? Uh, this yeah. is the thirteenth film in the Halloween series. And boy, is it a weird and complicated series. And if you want to hear us talk about John Carpenter's Halloween for the entire duration of that film, we recently mm. dropped a commentary track on our Patreon over at patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network. That's right. We talked uh, throughout the entire film. We talked about uh, how the film works, some of the trivia behind it, uh, our critical analyses yeah. of said film. Uh, Halloween is an interesting franchise because it's it's one of those franchises that kind of peaked with the first one, but we keep chugging we along keep, anyway. Keep on going back. Uh, Some of if, them are good. Many of them are bad, the, but the we just can't resist. Is, they average out pretty low. Um, uh, John Carpenter's Halloween is still, to this day, a pretty unassailable classic. It's still scary. It's still effective. It's one of the most influential movies, yeah, just period. It, it really did. It didn't invent slashers from like whole cloth it's very much inspired by films like bob clark specs uh, black christmas or yeah, bay of the, blood or tom is in there as well yeah um, and 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 uh, indeed any other uh, uh, uh what's that? and then there were none any other story where a bunch of people die over the course of the of the narrative um but it put all the pieces in place. Yeah. And, and finally it, became it, something that was easy for other people to copy, which so is exactly it, it, what they did. It was imitated for the better part of a decade. And uh, and still is, and to yeah, some extent. You know? sla slashers as they were uh, during the 1980s, mm. less common, uh, but they're still out there. Um, yeah. I saw a film just this year called They Them, which mm. was a slasher set at... I think it's officially uh, called They Slash Them. Ha, ha, ha. Uh, um, they Slash Them. And uh, yeah. it's one of the worst films of the year. It's terrible. That's a shame. Uh, but 
the, the attempt is still being made. There was those yeah. Fear Street movies. Those are yeah. slashers-ish. They're, those are sl- um, they're supernatural yeah. slashers, but they're slashers. Oh, hell, we had another Scream this year, and that right. would not exist without John Carpenter's... And, in fact, know, the, the original Scream is like a commentary on the, the whole slasher phenomenon. Uh, so, yeah, there was now a whole slew of continuities. Uh, Halloween led to Halloween 2, which where it was revealed that the Jamie Lee Curtis character, Laurie, was Michael Myers' sister. Yep. Though, uh... That story skipped ahead to Halloween 7 and 8, where the, that story was concluded. Well, a little bit, because uh, there was... how. Ha- okay, so Michael Myers attacked a bunch of babysitters in Halloween. Mm. Uh, the, the evening continued apace in the original Halloween 2. We yeah, found same, out Laurie was night, his sister. Yeah. Then we had a bit of a break as Halloween 3, Season of the Witch, decided, hey, what... You know, it, it's really this hard to... an anthology bring- series now. Yeah. Michael Myers isn't part well, of this Well, and anymore. also, like, seriously, like, he's not supernatural. How do we keep bringing him back after he's been killed so many times? So we want to keep... The franchise going, but we'll tell a completely different story. And they told a really kooky story about haunted masks. Haunted masks with a a, a chip, like a little stone mm. chip chipped off of Stonehenge. Yeah, in this little disc inside the mask, and that was com- like wired into a computer chip. Yeah, it was sci-fi as well. So, really uh, fucking so weird movie. when when a kid puts on a mask <laughs> and watches a TV broadcast with the mask on at a certain time on Halloween night, yeah. then it will activate magic inside the Stonehenge chip yeah. and turn their heads into bugs. And the idea is it's going to be a mass sacrifice of like America's children, and which is a horrifying concept, but the actual implementation of it is yeah, the, ludicrous and it's the, the very person, fun, but it's not. It's very the, stupid. The guy making the masks is like part of this old druidic cult, and yeah. uh, and he has robot helpers. There's yeah. robots in the yeah. It's it's a completely ridiculous movie. It's entertaining. Yeah, but. Uh, it's it's not the classic. It's now gaining the reputation. People were initially very eager to disregard that movie on any level just because it wasn't what they expected and didn't have Michael Myers in it. Mm. A couple of decades later, people started realizing, you know, if you can get over that, it's really, really fun. Oh. And we, it's a little underrated. And now people are saying it's as good as the original. I think that's an exaggeration, but it's, but it's fine. It's as good as the original. Then we had Halloween 4, which uh, I think actually had, wasn't Daniel Harris playing Laurie's daughter in that one? And she had like yeah. died in the in the interim. Um, yeah, Daniel Harris was Michael Myers' niece. Yeah, uh, Jamie, I think was the character's name. I think and, so, uh, yeah. and yeah, so he was coming was, after uh, her now. Coming, yeah, and so, there's a babysitter trying to protect uh, her. Loomis came back. That is a solid three star slasher. It's yeah, it, it's a fine, perfectly fine, cheapy follow up to the first one. Yeah, uh, and and it can continue with the mythology that. Laurie and Michael were relatives. Yeah, and uh, then we got got to Halloween Five, which. I barely remember. Okay, I just Halloween, remember it being quite bad. Halloween, uh, okay, Halloween 4, and I lo- this is one of the things I love about Halloween 4. Halloween 4 ends with, after everything that Daniel Harris' character has been through, mm. she kills somebody. Yeah, like, like, Michael like Myers' she, evil she has infected her. She becomes, like, kind of the yeah. next Michael Myers. Uh, the next film backtracks on that immediately. She's in a mental institution, but they really don't talk about the fact that she might be, like, the new Michael Myers. Instead, she's psychic now and can psychically see Michael Myers as he's hunting her. It doesn't really work, but it ends with this weird thing where, like, Michael Myers is, like, arrested, but then, like, this mysterious guy comes in and, like, kills everyone in a police station, like a supernatural Terminator. And, 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 like, sets him free. Yeah, it's a a bizarre cliffhanger. But then the seventh, I'm sorry, the sixth one comes out, and uh, that's the one that stars Paul Rudd. And that's the one where we find out that Michael Myers isn't just some serial killer uh, who's obsessed with his family. Uh, He is a tool 
of a supernatural cult called the Cult of Thorn that needs Michael to kill every single member of his family to complete a prophecy. And that movie is nonsense. It's... It, it was a notoriously troubled production. It was yeah. recut numerous times, and uh, the version that made it to the big screen, it was released theatrically, uh, is it's barely even a movie. Like yeah. it hardly holds together. Yeah, uh, some fun Halloween stuff in it. Yeah, it's not. It's uh, not like it's the worst movie ever uh, made or anything year, like that. Years yeah. later, when they put it out on home video, they like sort of cobbled together like what they called the producer's cut. Yeah, it's like an assembly cut of this movie, and uh, it's much better. It, it's well, it's cogent. I'm <laughs> not gonna say it's better. But, I will uh, say that cogent is better. Yeah, <laughs> it's actually it. It doesn't work, but at least it kind of makes sense as you're watching it. Like yeah. it worked. It the story kind of operates on its own terms now and Donald Pleasance who died uh, during or immediately after the production I forget which um, he, he he finished his scenes mm-hmm. then they had to go back and reshoot some stuff and he had died already at that yeah. point so, and so they, they gave sort him of like fill some stuff in the, but the original the original producer's cut the original uh, version of the film ended with a cliffhanger where Dr. Loomis the guy who was always telling you when Michael Myers is evil we must hunt him down uh, actually is forced into the cult and is now Michael Myers's keeper in a mm. weird kind of unexplored way, which I imagine they would have gotten to uh, in in the future. Uh, but when Donald Pleasance passed away, they re-edited it really awkwardly to suggest that he died off camera. And um, boy, I, I is can't that, even it, tell what goes on. That's that just an undignified cut. end for that. I'd rather just a cliffhanger go unresolved. It's just so undignified. Anyway, those movies were such a mess that the the series went fallow for a few years, and after the success of Scream. Uh, slashers were suddenly popular again and they said hey what if we do another halloween and they actually did it pretty classy they brought jamie lee curtis back and they said that everything after halloween 2 season of the witch four through six didn't happen one of the first prominent movies to really do that sort of pick and choose canon which movies are going to count as canon which movies aren't uh, she's still a sister, but she's been living in witness protection this entire time because Michael Myers went missing, and now she is an adult, she's an alcoholic, she's been struggling with her PTSD all these years, and she's a single mother of Josh Hartnett, who is dating Michelle Williams. Cool cast! <laughs> um, and uh, Michael Myers is able to track her down, and he attacks, and you know what? I think that movie is one of Jamie Lee Curtis's best performances. It's a good she's perform- really bringing it. It's a good performance. It has. Uh, it, it came out in uh, 1998, 20 years mm-hmm. later, and that was after Scream, and it has a very Kevin Williamson kind of vibe. Mm-hmm. A little who's, self-aware who's, who's the yeah. screenwriter of Scream. Uh, screen. I think and, he even uh, did a pass on H2O, if memory serves. But, yeah, maybe so. Uh, but yeah, it had that kind of flip a uh, very casual view of violence uh, self-aware mm. tone that was sort of pervasive throughout uh, mm. the slashers that scream helped revive yeah uh, Kevin Williamson is credited uh, uncredited but he worked on the story like he did a draft and then okay, it yeah so it makes perfect sense some of his ideas were used not all of them. Uh, yeah that one was meant to be sort of like the end of it and mm-hmm. at the end of that movie uh, Jamie Lee Curtis cuts Michael Myers head off with yeah. an axe and that's just it we're done <laughs> we yeah. killed him it's great the moment I love in that movie is there's a moment where Jamie Lee Curtis is able to rescue some of the kids Michael Myers has been mm-hmm. killing and then they're all, they're all about to escape and then she says you know what fuck this shit and she picks up an axe and she walks back up to the building Michael Myers is in mm-hmm. screaming his name yeah. and they use 
the Halloween theme now, instead of like a scary, the monster is coming to get you, uh. they use it as a hero theme <laughs> as she's coming to get the monster. Yeah. That scene works great. I love that scene. Yeah, right. Anyway, uh, that movie made a lot of money, so they said, fuck it, we have to undo that ending. And so instead, in Halloween Resurrection, so they, turned, they, they, they found re- out she killed some other guy by accident. Like Michael Myers put... Like he's got you know the famous mask. He put his mask on someone else, uh-huh. and that was the guy who's like trapped under a tree and couldn't speak. Yeah. So Jamie Lee Curtis killed that guy, and now like, uh, oh god, that ruins that movie. So now now Laura, so we catch up with Laurie, and she's like in haggard in a mental institution, and Michael's coming after, her, and he pushes her off a roof, and she dies. A really like, anticlimactic. Right at the beginning of the movie, it's such crap. And then we're stuck with this really. It's it's so well, embarrassing. It's, it's actually kind of funny. Uh, this it's idea a, that there is an online reality television series produced by Busta Rhymes. Mm, kind and, of playing himself, really. Yeah, like a version of his persona. Mm. And um, he he uh, uh, gets a bunch of like young, attractive people to spend the night in Michael Myers' house. And he's planning to like scare them with like you know haunted house gags yeah, or whatever. A, but he doesn't realize Michael Myers is actually hill stuff. He yeah. doesn't realize Michael Myers is actually in mm. the house and actually going to kill them. That movie is intensely silly oh it's it quite bad doesn't work but there are a few choice moments like when Buster Rhymes roundhouse kicks Michael in the head <laughs> you just don't see that in most movies I wish you did um, anyway that movie did not do good and the series went fallow for a long time and then uh, finally uh, Blumhouse was able to oh that's not that true I skipped, no, it, I skipped the, you, finally you, sk- you skipped the other I, two I skipped, <laughs> I skipped the reboot they said hey let's remake Halloween which feels like you know no, sacrilege that, to a lot of people that's what they were doing in the mid 2000s yeah that, the mid 2000s were uh, uh, a time of many a remake uh, the, the blockbuster remake of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre uh, was a wasn't the first of money, wasn't yeah. the first hit horror remake by any stretch, it's but the thing that, that one was the barn doors open. That, though, that yeah. one started a trend, and we had a lot of them. Most of them were pretty forgettable. Some of them were good. Uh, Rob Zombie, was, who had done House of a Thousand Corpses and The Devil's Rejects, was hired to do a remake of Halloween. And kudos to Rob Zombie for trying something different. I don't quite think it worked, but his whole well, thing was, what if we told? The story of Halloween, the same basic story, but Mm. rather than leaving Michael Myers an enigma, what if I go into great detail about what his childhood was like and how he became the way he became? Because in Rob Zombie's head, Dr. Loomis's idea of Michael Myers as an empty, soulless, evil husk of a being Mm. was wrong. He's a bad psychologist in Rob Zombie's movies. Mm. And Michael Myers is actually, I mean, he's, he's... does terrible things, but he's not inhuman. He's yeah. he's a very tragic figure in Rob Zombie's mm. mind. Not everyone liked that. Uh, well, and the problem was he told that story you know, about this poor child. He's like, mm. I think he's like uh, aged up to like eleven or twelve in the movie. Well, we, we uh, see but, him throughout various points in his childhood. I yeah, think. yeah. Um, it in John Carpenter's uh, Michael Myers was uh, like killed his sister and Judith mm. when he was very well. He was like. Six or seven, like it was very, very young, and and then in this one, he's kind of aged up to 11 or 12. Mm -hmm. Uh, but yeah, he suffered all of this abuse, he was always interested in masks, he was always a little bit off. Like, I think he's seen uh, doing like like torturing animals earlier in the movie, yeah. Uh, So, so, yeah, flag you hear about, yeah. Uh, so all of that is explored. I think that's all done in like there's a lot of screaming and it's all really disturbing, but that's the goal Rob Zombie set out for himself, and uh. I think the problem was he had to do the slasher movie part as well. Yeah. And by the time 
Michael Myers is, you know, the masked murderer is going to stalk babysitters. Uh-huh. The movie's like three quarters of the way over. Yeah, it's got the same so problem the, uh, Spider-Man 3 has. But by the time Venom is Venom, mm-hmm. we've, we're, we're in the last act. We do yeah, not have a lot so, of time to have fun with so that. So they, they kind of condensed all of the events of John Carpenter's movie into like the last half of uh, Rob yeah. Zombie's movie. It's just weirdly structured. Uh, yeah. Then he made uh, Halloween 2, another movie called Halloween 2, which drove me up the walls. <laughs> Can, many, can, can it be like Halloween colon subtitle? It just, yeah, you're also just, going to call it Halloween Just two? for the purpose of filing. Of clarity. <laughs> yeah. Would be nice. So he made another movie. It was also called Halloween 2. And uh, this one he was allowed to do a little bit more what he wanted. Yeah. Which is to say he wanted to delve into the psychology of Michael Myers, but now in kind of a more surrealist way. So we yeah. have all these like hallucinations and visions of his dead mother. We and see a lot of his dreams, child, yeah. but we also see that in this version, Rob Zombie's version, Laurie is also his sister. And, um, we see in Halloween too, how surviving that attack. And this takes us like a year or two later. Mm has completely wrecked her and her community. And it's a film very, very much about grief and mourning in a lot of ways. It's about the aftermath of violence and what it does to people. Um, And I think it's actually one of Rob Zombie's more mature works in a lot of ways, even though it's brash and it's... Uh, very visceral. There's a lot of violence in it. I also really like the way Rob Zombie picks and chooses all the parts from the sequels that nobody really likes that much. Mm. And he says, okay, I'm going to take the hospital, uh, the fact that Halloween 2 took place entirely on hospital. I'm going to have a whole scene in a hospital, but I'm not going to do the whole thing yeah. there. I'm going to take the idea that at the end of Halloween 4, someone related to Michael Myers uh, uh, is is potentially infected by his evil. I'm going to play with that. I'm going to take the fact that in Halloween 6, we found out that Loomis actually made money off of this and sold books. I'm going to make that Loomis's whole thing. He's mm. been, just been using the Michael Myers massacre uh, to exploit uh, Michael Myers and make money, and that's just made him that much worse a character. There, there's a, a scene in Halloween 2 uh-huh. where Loomis goes on a talk show to talk about <laughs> his book, and yeah. and his character is completely changed. It's ma- played by Malcolm McDowell, and he's... Uh, now just a, a straight up villain like he's he's, he's completely sold out and, yeah, he's completely sold out and, and yeah. is like completely egotistical and now he's really vain and he goes on a talk show and the other guest on the talk show uh-huh. sitting on the other side of him from the host is Weird Al Yankovic and Weird Al Yankovic himself. roasts him yeah <laughs> it's pretty great the, I love that. Uh, th- this this picture arose during production of Rob Zombie, Weird Al Yankovic, and Malcolm McDowell all sit standing next to each other. And I looked at that picture for a long time to make sure it wasn't fake. It's like, <laughs> when did this happen? Oh wait, they were yeah. they made Halloween two together. Anyway, I love Halloween two. I think it makes uh, a lot of big swings. I appreciate. Uh, I think at that point. Rob Zombie had earned the rights to really make Halloween his own, and I think he did a pretty good job of it. I think mm-hmm. it's a very excitingly made movie. I, I realize it's it's kind of sloppy, but it's sloppy mm. because he's got a lot of ideas, not because he doesn't have any. He's got a lot of ideas. Not all of them are good. Uh, mm. I, I, I think I, maybe I owe it another watch. I remember hating it when it came out just mm. because of that sloppiness. I, I didn't care enough yeah. for it either. I rewatched it a couple of years ago and I was like, I was wrong. This movie's great. Okay, well, yeah. uh, I... I 
the, I didn't, the I didn't change my tune much on Halloween on his first Halloween. I, I like I see what you're going for. I don't think it works. I really think Halloween Two is. is right. I, I know uh, that that have. one's being pretty heavily relitigated now. Now that yeah. there's a thirteenth film, so that's ten movies. Uh, then yeah. David Gordon Green came back with Blumhouse and uh, decided to make uh, three at once. And yeah, more or less at once. Yeah. More or less with, at once, with, yeah. in quick succession. Anyway. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, 2018 saw another movie, the third film now, just called Halloween, mm-hmm. and this one is uh, Halloween Two all over again. Yeah, uh, so they decided it, only the first film counted. Only yeah, so that we skip in continuity. We skip straight from uh, John Carpenter's to this one. Now uh, Jamie Lee Curtis is back as Laurie, but now she's been uh, obsessed with the idea that Michael Myers will break out of his mental institution someday. Yeah, and come after her, and she's gonna. Yeah. and now she's like become a survivalist. And to clarify, in case anyone mm-hmm. is is new to this, uh, in this uh, updated version of Halloween, she's no longer his sister. She's just someone he happened to yeah. attack that night. She's been living with a lot of uh, post traumatic stress, and yeah, she doesn't feel safe. She's just yeah, waiting she's... for the day when he comes back because he's in a mental institution within short driving distance, mm-hmm. and she is constantly worried about. And she has raised a daughter Played by Judy Greer Judy Greer has her own daughter Played by Andy Matichak And she raised Judy Greer Much in the same way That like Linda Hamilton Raised Eddie Furlong in T2 oh. To be ready for when the monster comes oh. Not And eventually Judy Greer Was like taken away This mom is kind of abusive to you This is not She's not living in You know yeah. in reality And now Judy Greer has rejected her mother's teachings, and I, I think the cleverest thing in the whole movie is that Judy Greer spends all of this movie that takes place on October 31st wearing a Christmas sweater. That's great. She's already <laughs> she's just past she's it. She's like, I, I don't remember, uh, but in my head canon, she's watching Hallmark Christmas movies that night. Yeah, John Carpenter came back. He contributed some music. Uh, and, good score. Really uh, good score. Well, John Carpenter's score. And, uh, they used, he still had it. It's, uh, that film is it's a cover song. It's so, somebody covering a song you've heard before, uh, yeah. and in a frustrating way, isn't changing a lot of the instrumentation. It, it's mm. like almost authentic, almost to a fault. Yeah. Uh, it's it's effective, but I wish that a new idea had been brought to it. Which I, I feel uh, like the David whole Gordon, yeah. No, no, you go for it. No, I just feel like the whole point. I agree with you on all of that. Mm. I feel like the point of that was to try to basically say. All of these sequels and remakes that have gone pretty far afield from what the original was doing, we need to remember that what the original did still works. Mm. And so we're going to go back to the well, and then to his credit, the next two films, he did switch it up. Yeah. yeah a lot, well, so for better or worse. Uh, yeah. yeah, I was going to say, but he brought some new ideas into uh, Halloween Kills, which was the film that he followed up with. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that one also takes place on the same night, uh, Lori, same Halloween. Lori still spends the entire film in a hospital. She, yeah, exactly. She... <laughs> Yeah, Jamie Lee Curtis is sort of set aside. A lot of the action is uh, put in the hands of a character played by Anthony Michael Hall. The Paul, the Rudd, Paul Rudd character from yeah. Halloween 6. Yeah. Uh, and also a, a little kid character from uh, the original Halloween. Yeah, it was one of the kids Laurie was babysitting yeah. in the original, yeah. And he's grown into Anthony Michael Hall. Uh, yeah. Michael Myers is out. He's killed people. And now uh, the entire town of Haddonfield, Illinois, has uh, essentially set up a bunch of posses so they can yeah. scour the town and look for him and try to kill him. Yeah. Which also and happened in Halloween 4. Yeah, it, it, it takes a lot of cues from Halloween 4. Uh, yeah. But, uh, but, yeah, but basically uh, the entire town of Haddonfield becomes the new protagonist of that movie. It's not really so much focused on Laurie. And the entire town uh, succumbs to... Like mob uh, rule. Ma- yeah, what you may call mass hysteria. They, they just uh, decide, okay, we all have to go out there and try to hunt and kill Michael Myers. It goes badly for every mm. single person. 
Uh, I think there's actually there's there's the problem with Halloween Kills. I think isn't the idea because I think the idea is actually kind of interesting and exciting, mm-hmm. and it opens it up a lot. And you still get all it's there's a massive body count of that movie. There's a lot of yeah, really the, memorable deaths in I, that film. I think the the problem with Halloween Kills is uh, you know slashers work well when they're intimate. You know slashers mm. are called slashers because the killers don't like use guns. They're yeah. not. You know they're not throwing bombs into people's houses. Yeah. They're they're stabbing them and like mm. up close, intimate. Look, look, and, and indeed, most slashers people don't know for most of the movie that their friends are being murdered. Yeah, like people are yeah. wandering off alone and getting killed in yeah. like these intimate it's, spaces. It's usually a spree killing. It usually doesn't mm. take place over long periods of time. Mm. Scream is a bit of an exception to that rule, yeah. but yeah. So this idea of expanding the slasher to the entire town, I think, makes it a lot less exciting. I mean, it's a, uh, that's I not, think it's not an, so an interesting idea. I, I like it because I think it's just it's a slightly different approach. Uh, mm. I think the idea that oh. Haddonfield as a community has been really impacted by yeah. Michael Myers's uh, a travesty, which yeah, it would. Um, so I, I I dig that movie. Yeah, much. I think a... it, I think it really oversells itself. Like it mm. overplays its thematic hands. Like the, everyone made fun of the fact that everyone constantly is screaming, "Evil dies tonight!" Evil dies tonight. Which, to be fair, yeah, you can totally mock that movie for that. They overdo that constantly. They mm. should have edited at least half of those out because it's just overblown, and it becomes a drinking game after a while. It, it's it, it's just not a very good movie. Yeah, uh, but I do like the ending because the ending basically <laughs> brings it kind of back to supernatural territory mm. with the idea that Michael Myers is actually like cornered by a mob, but the fact that his evil has spread to the whole town kind of feels like it's empowering him it's like and making him the actual <laughs> boogeyman now. Mm. I kind of love that. Yeah, I love that, that that really that's... weird swing. I wish that Halloween Ends had acknowledged that even a little, but <laughs> well, it doesn't. Here, it doesn't do it at so all. Here, so here we are at Halloween Ends. Yeah. Uh, we we've been called out before by uh, by some of our listeners that if we give yeah. a long backstory leading up into a new movie, yeah. it's usually a sign that we we're going to dislike it. And yeah. uh, I want to want to put an end to that because I actually there's a lot I like about Halloween Ends. Okay. Uh, this is not a movie I hate. Uh, I, I, don't, I, hate I don't hate it. I think I, you like I it hate, more than I do. I but hate I Halloween hate Kills, but what, I, I liked Halloween Kills. The a lot, first but... half of this movie is more or less a David Gordon Green film in the old mold. Mm. Uh, David Gordon Green started his career uh, with a lot of excellence, like some of the best of the decade level, uh, sort of small-town dramas. He made films yeah. like George Washington and All the Real Girls and Undertow uh, and uh, Snow Angels is just devastating these are like really raw emotional movies about uh small town life and the human condition and you know emotional journeys these are really really excellent movies and his whole career has since then been sort of really back and forth uh because he's done all like a couple broad comedies he did pineapple express Mm -hmm. Uh, he's friends with danny mcbride they wrote they wrote a lot of these these movies together danny mcbride co-wrote these halloween movies as well uh, and that's a stoner comedy, but yeah. it has like a little bit of humanity in it, so you can kind of see some of uh, of David Gordon Green in there. But he also did films like Your Highness and The Sitter, these mm-hmm. like broad oh, the slapstick sitter. farces. Some of those are funny. The Sitter is awful. 
<laughs> Sinner is so bad. He did that one. Uh, mm. What was the uh, our, our brand is Crisis, which I didn't nobody see that remembers one. that yeah. he did that one. That um, was like his big studio Oscar yeah. bait kind of film. Yeah, and it's completely forgettable. Yeah. Uh, he, but then he did like a couple of like Joe and Manglehorn, so he kind of got yeah. quiet again. I like Manglehorn a lot. I think it's a really underappreciated Al really performance. Uh, and yeah, and then he came, comes back and he's now doing like these kind of slasher movies. And I feel like with Halloween ends, he was really keen on something that, uh, Rob Zombie was doing in Halloween two and what mm. he was tr- trying to start a conversation about in Halloween kills, which is how much the, the deaths and the murders mm. were leaking out into society and into that is Haddonfield, Illinois. And it, it's an imaginary town. Halloween ends spends a lot of time outside in Haddonfield. It's not necessarily, it's not like inside with all these characters. We're not spending, we're yeah. getting to know what this community is. And we get well, this. Well, it doesn't take place over just one night now. It's actually like like a okay. couple of weeks leading up to it. And that gives yeah. you a little bit more room to tell those stories. Yeah. The, uh, you know, rather than just trying to truncate them all. Yeah, there's a an, it, there's a, a, a prologue, like an introductory sequence where uh, we meet this new character, a character named Corey, yeah. uh, who is a babysitter uh, the night of... The first two movies. No, it's actually the night. It's actually the year oh, it's after. It's the year after. The, it's the yeah, year sorry. after, and and Hall, Michael Myers has disappeared. No one knows mm-hmm. if he's out there, and everyone's super everyone's, nervous yeah, about really, really resuming Halloween activities. And, uh, there, something really, really unfortunate happens with Corey that right at the beginning. Is, that sequence is a killer. It's really hard to watch. That sequence uh, is really intense. So yeah. Uh, yeah, so something horrible happens with Corey. Um, a, a, a child in his care dies, and uh, this is now hanging over him. He is racked by guilt, and. Yeah. Because Haddonfield mm. has been so bleached out by death, mm-hmm. uh, there's no comfort for a character like Corey. Well, the, the, the uh, death that they've experienced until now, all of the Michael Myers slayings, they've had no closure on whatsoever. Yeah. He's that's just, that's the movie's argument, is that Haddonfield has never had any closure, and as a result, it's just this festering wound that started to infect every part of the town, and so we haven't been able to punish Michael Myers, but we can punish Corey. Yeah. And he's become the pariah yeah, of the town. Of, yeah. So Corey, he's played by an actor named Rohan Campbell, and... Um, he, he, he's really good. Uh, there, it's probably no coincidence that he looks a lot like the lead character from Stephen King's Christine. Oh, uh, everyone keeps uh, saying that. You know who he looks like to me? Hmm. He looks like... Um, oh, who's the guy? Oh, I'm gonna, oh I've interviewed him. This is going to drive me nuts. The, the guy who plays uh, Will Graham on Hannibal. Oh, yeah. Um, um, oh, it's, I want to say n- it's... Nervous McTwitchy dude. Uh, nervous McTwitchy dude. Yeah. Uh, really good act. Hugh Dancy. That's who it is. Oh, Hugh yeah. Dancy. I, I, I almost wanted to say Mr. Darcy. I'm like, that can't be right. Hugh Dancy. Hugh Dancy. Yeah, yeah. I actually really like Hugh Dancy, but he's got this... It's just face structure, eyes, they look kind of similar. Mm. But he's also this very twitchy, very emotionally raw... Like, mm. I'm very susceptible to anything that could happen to me today yeah. kind of vibe. Oh. Uh, I feel like he's... I feel like Rowan Campbell may have seen Hannibal. Maybe <laughs> That's so. a theory of mine. Uh, and so we, we fast forward, uh, to, like, to the present day, to 2022. Yeah. It's been a couple of years. Yeah. Uh, and and Ro- uh, Corey is a mess. Like, yeah. he... he, he uh, had to leave school. He's now just sort of working as a mechanic. No one will hire him. He's hated by everyone because he has this reputation of being a child murderer. And it's been wearing away at him. Yeah. That he lives at home. That is, uh, his dad is a little bit warm, but his mom is very cold to him. Well, his mom is, Not, his mom is emotionally abusive to him. Yeah. His mom is, his mom is and, uh, hurting him. And uh, we get to, uh, understand that 
there, there's this interesting moment where uh, and Laurie's back, Jamie Lee Curtis is back, and she's writing a really terrible memoir. Yeah, and, it's, uh, everything it's, it's, she writes is pretty trite. It's, yeah, it's, yeah, it's like really not good prose. But uh, but Laurie's she, in a pretty good place, actually. All things considered, yeah, she, she's she actually has living decided in. Yeah. That, She's not going to be defined, like, she lost her daughter, and she's yeah. not going to be defined by the death anymore, and she's really trying to actively be a little bit more upbeat and cheerful. And, and more maternal a, to her granddaughter. Maternal to her Jack, grandmother, yeah. and a wonderfully sweet scene between her and Will Patton, the local sheriff. Yeah, they're good Like, in a grocery store where they're, like, kind of flirting and are embarrassed to yeah. be doing it, and there's, like, these are people in their 60s, and they're still, like, shy. It's really sweet. It's really cute. I wish the whole movie had just and, been uh, them. And then she leaves the grocery store, and she's confronted in the parking lot mm-hmm. by one of Michael Myers' victims who survived. She's, yeah. uh, but she was grievously injured, and she's in a wheelchair yeah. now. And she's mad and, uh, that Laurie is happy about anything. And, La- yeah, Laurie is not permitted to move on because she is, and this is an interesting concept, kind of complicit in Michael Myers' violence. She was waiting for him. She kind of welcomed him in. Yeah. And in so doing, kind of let him loose on the town. So yeah, which is whether, bullshit, whether not, but also I get why they think that. You know, it's it, it gives them an opportunity to have a scapegoat. Uh-huh. You can be mad at Lori. Lori's right here, and Lori won't kill you for saying it, so you can be mad at Lori. But I, the I idea the, that Lori well, isn't idea... allowed to be happy for even a second mm. also affects Corey. Corey and Lori, Whoa. brilliant. <laughs> The idea that that a town is so marked by uh, by these murders that they are now incapable of letting themselves sort of move past it. Let themselves be happy. Yeah, we can't do it. So this this is wrong. This is a town marked by misery, and that Mm -hmm. misery is sort of like the haunting presence. And I like that idea that Haddonfield is the mm-hmm. main character and sure. that Haddonfield is a horrible character. I, I kind of got uh, that from Halloween Kills, though. Uh, in, in a much more blunt way. In this sure. one, it's actually a lot more presented a lot more like smartly and a lot more subtly. In some ways, uh, yes. In some ways, no. I feel like when uh, Corey is dealing with his parents and dealing with like the sort of incidental uh, mm-hmm. anger from people... It's kind of subtle, but then he just meets like four teenage bullies who like pick mm. on him for like who are the band geeks? They're the, <laughs> like, they're the band geeks or the bullies the in this town. Wow, the paradigm has shifted. But in any case, it just feels like that start scene starts getting more slasher movie blunt in mm. a way that seems less grounded and plausible and more plotty and oh good these are characters we can kill later kind of way in terms of how how bluntly moralizing it is about it but and and uh what i appreciate though is that this all of that is focused on uh cory yes uh it's not about the group of characters that are going to be killed off it's just we're Mm. really kind of intensely focused on this one character i know a lot of people are objecting to that this is called halloween ends you expect Mm. it to be some sort of finale and it's actually not a finale, and I think mm. that's what a lot of people are, are kind of objecting well, to. And that's one of the reasons why it, anticipation can be a real danger yeah, here, because so, you want to judge the film we get, not the film you expected. So, I, I, And Corey, uh, even though he's being sort of pilloried by the community, is actually being embraced by Laurie's granddaughter. Mm-hmm. And, they and start, Laurie. And Laurie as well. Like They see what he's been through. They see this young man who... Uh, you, was on the wrong end of this really horrendous accident where a kid died and uh, understand what an effect that's having on him. Uh, there's a really cute scene, and I, I've, 
I'm shocked that David Gordon Green put this in the movie. But uh, the boy's mother uh, runs into him in a bar later on. Oh, yeah. And uh, the young girl from the original Halloween, uh, Lindsay, Lindsay yeah. uh, she grew up to be uh, that actress, mm-hmm. uh, grew up to be one of the real housewives of Beverly Hills. Yeah. So you can see on reality TV. And there's this really notorious meme going around of uh, from the Real Housewives of Beverly Hills, where somebody's like pointing and yelling, oh. and then the reaction shot is a cat sitting at a table, and the cat like is really smug. Yeah, I, I've, se- I've seen the meme. Yeah. I don't understand the reference, but uh, I've, well, I know what I know what the meme because means. Lindsay from Halloween is the one uh, putting her arm around the screaming woman in that picture. Oh, okay. The blonde woman screams, and Lindsay puts her arm around it in like the exact oh same configuration. <laughs> Of the cat meme, like okay, I had David no, Gordon Green is having I did a good not, time. With I did that. not pick up on that. I love knowing that that's there. And when I watch the movie again someday, I'm totally gonna look for it because yeah. that's fucking funny. The, there's, there's a. a I didn't know she was in that an meme. So I was to the cat meme with one of the same actors. I wasn't looking for that because I didn't realize the actress who plays Lindsay was in that meme. So that's really funny to me. Thank you for <laughs> thank you for telling me that. That makes. I'm gonna yeah. be honest. That that raises the movie half a star. <laughs> That's, that's very that, cute. That somebody thought to do that. That's pretty uh, fun. Anyway, um, so uh, when, when we're following this Corey character, I think this is actually a really interesting drama we have so far. Mm-hmm. This is a very David Gordon Green type of a movie where we're mm-hmm. sort of pondering the morality of the place and how le- things like poverty and being pilloried can do uh, just sort of widespread mental damage for a great deal mm-hmm. of the, the populace. Yeah. Uh, and then there's... This very strange moment where uh, Corey gets thrown off of a bridge, wanders into uh, uh, Pennywise's sewer. Real, real fast. We're going to start getting to the point where some people might consider this spoiler stuff, but we cannot talk about the movie without talking about the plot. So if you want to not hear any spoiler stuff and just hear like a final, and we're not going to go into the whole fucking film, but like, this is some of the stuff people might not want to know. So, uh, we feel comfortable talking about it because we need to, but if you want to skip ahead, there are time codes in the description of the episode, whether you're listening to this uh, on whatever, Spotify or whatever, or uh, if you're listening to it on the Patreon where you can listen to it without ads. Uh, we will put time codes in there so that you know like you can just skip ahead to the next review or to the review roundup at the end where we talk mm-hmm. about every film in more general terms. So, just a heads up. Anyway, halfway through the movie... So yeah, about halfway through the movie, uh, it's, it's like 45 minutes in. We've, yeah. we've taken a long time with Corey. Most and, of the movie is yeah. about Corey first and foremost, which, and which is an odd choice. I'm not saying it's a bad one, but it's an odd choice. I, I think if uh, you're going into something like Halloween Ends expecting like the final confrontation, you might be a little upset that it's about this new character. But I mm-hmm. like this idea that we're following a new character. This is what... Um, uh, Friday the 13th Part 5 did. Uh, I got uh, real F13-5 vibes yeah. out of this. Because it's just basically... How, can we continue this franchise without the, without killer, the killer we've had? Yeah. Which Friday the 13th had already done. They killed the killer in the first movie. And then they mm. went on to their son. And then mm. it's like... Well, if the last one was the final chapter... Can we keep this going with that air of finality... That Jason Voorhees actually did die... Mm. But still keep the iconography... And still keep the tone and the vibe of it... The answer to that question was, kinda. <laughs> they actually probably could have, but then they yeah. chickened out and they brought him back anyway. Uh, something I learned about uh, Friday the 13th just kind of recently is that the mask, that uh, the famous hockey mask that he wears, uh-huh. is specifically the configuration worn by the Detroit Red Wings. Yes. Uh, and I, I looked up, why isn't it 
it takes place in New Jersey. Yeah. Why isn't it the New Jersey team? And it turns out the New Jersey, the Jersey Devils uh, weren't formed until at like, I think they were formed like the year that movie came out. Oh, weird. I didn't so, know that. That's funny. That, that, that is the third one where he first yeah. puts on the mask. And the original mask, it wasn't like he was a ho- local hockey fan or anything. Mm. It was literally just, there's a guy who had a lot of like, Halloween costumes and masks and like mm. fake machetes and stuff like that, and it just was one of the masks he had in his bag of tricks. And Jason, yeah. Jason could have easily put on a Frankenstein mask or any other random mask. Mm. He just happened to put on a hockey mask, and it just stuck. Yeah, it just the stuck. Second one, he had that bag over his head. That was yeah, pretty that was cool. Looked different too, vibe. Yeah. So anyway, Corey, uh, he's thrown off a bridge uh, and yeah, lands next to Pennywise's sewer, uh, yeah. wanders inside and standing in there like he's recharging his batteries in a Borg alcove. Yeah, like just standing, just at a standing wall against a wall weird scene. Is, is Michael Myers. Yeah. And you don't know if this is a hallucination or not. And yeah. I th- Is this real? Is this literal? What's yeah. going on here? And, and uh, he grabs Corey but doesn't kill him. Mm-hmm. And there's this weird sequence where it seems like uh, Michael has essentially like transferred his soul into Corey's body. It's that or Michael picked up Corey and maybe he was going to kill Corey, but then he recognized something in Corey, yeah, something well, akin I, to himself. And, and I think both of those are legit reads because yeah. it's left a little abstract. Uh, needless to say, Corey emerges and he is uh, now marked. Uh, yeah. He th- that was like the breaking point for him. Uh, yeah. Whether or not that was real or that was something that happened in his head, something happened with Corey in that sewer where he comes yeah. out and he's, now he's, he's been pushed too far. And like, now he's okay. Going I have to the repu- repu- reputation of being a killer. I'm just going to be that. Yeah. Uh, and again, this is this all sounds still very David Gordon Greeny. Yeah. Uh, it's when the movie starts to become a little bit more like a legit slasher movie uh-huh. that I think it loses a lot of what made it interesting well, it, in that first half. It actually ends up feeling a lot more, weirdly enough, it actually ends up feeling a lot more like Rob Zombie's remake of Halloween mm. where the majority of the film is actually a pretty straightforward sad drama about mm. what led someone to commit acts of violence and then all the slasher killer stuff is mostly relegated to the last act of the film. Yeah. Because Corey... You know, he t- starts becoming more Michael Myers. He starts becoming more confident, and this is where the Keith Gordon and Christine thing comes yeah, on. Yeah. And he starts, like, actually, like, seriously dating Andy Matichak's character. And she's, like, really into him. And I, you know what? I feel like they really chickened out on. Lori, uh, I forget, Allison. Allison Strode. Yeah. Allison is dating someone. And she thinks she sees in him something of her own family, like the trauma they've dealt with, not realizing that she's actually dating an updated version of Michael. Mm. There's something in her that is attracted to Michael in a weird way. We will never explore that. That doesn't come up at all. And that, I feel like, is... You rely on that as a plot point, and you don't want to talk about that at all. Mm. And I thought that was really annoying. But in any case... He gets it in his head that he needs to just basically lay waste to this town and leave. And it leads to a big bloodbath. Mm. And Laurie Strode gets involved. And really bad things happen. Some of them very memorably gross. Yeah, yeah. Um, And and you'll you'll get the confrontation you've been waiting for. Eventually, it feels really tacked on, I'll say that. Uh, I mean, it's it's appropriately violent. It is, but it's very tacked on. I actually dug how painful and slicey Mm. it was, but... uh, Mm. A lot of lot of blood and cutting, and you going ah. Uh, it, but the, the, the actual it's... like Laurie Michael conclusion reminds me of the theatrical cut of The Exorcist Three, which mm. didn't used to have an exorcism in it. 
That's right. They kind of threw it in at the, the end. Yeah, the idea was they'd filmed this movie that was a follow-up to The Exorcist, and it had... It's one of the scariest fucking movies ever. It's so beautifully handled. But it didn't end in an exorcism, and so the studio was like, we need to add an exorcism to this. So they added, like, a character who had a couple of scenes here and there and he never quite knew what was going to come on. And then he showed up at the end to perform an exorcism and technically the exorcism is in there, but it feels tacked on. Yeah. And that's how I feel about the actual Halloween ends part of Halloween ends. It really does feel like we're just wrapping this thing up real, real fast at the end. And honestly, I'm not very convinced by any of the events that happen, especially the whole bit that's supposed to allegedly provide some catharsis to the town. Mm. I don't buy that for one second. No, I find that I incredibly think, unconvincing. I, I Because I, there's, I there's, no, been... there's no twinge that, like, it's not that. Mm. It's actually just basically happy ending. And I'm like, yeah. no, this is the exact same shit that was self-perpetuating all the horror in the first place. And that's, you're just doing it more. That, so I'm that not sure the, that's going to help. But that was the impression I got from that cathartic moment was uh, that it wasn't going to help anybody. I wish that's the like, movie had actually shown that. And so it like, makes it, sense. The, the, like, if there was like an epilogue like the next year and everything is just horrible. And yeah. it's like just as horrible as it always was. Something. Uh, just some instance. Yeah. Some, some indication that it didn't completely help would, I think, have helped yeah, me a lot. So it, it's it's a mixed bag. Um, I I don't. It's getting a lot of mixed reviews. Uh, yeah. And I think that because of it's two different things. It's mm-hmm. this really quiet drama about a, a a terrible town that is marked by death and is in pain and probably won't heal. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would love to see like you know a flash forward like you know. Halloween 2090 and just hadn't and just flying cars and everything no just hadn't like, no, just Haddonfield is a field just, yeah. it's just a field now oh I like, get like it like the whole town was swallowed up by me like it's okay. just gone now I, I actually that like, would have been nice I, I but, actually uh, like that 2078 just 20, go all the way to the oh there you go like 100, 100 years later yeah. the town is just vanished I, I, I actually I actually really like that I yeah. think it's weirdly poetic uh, sadly they don't go quite that far with it so but yeah this I I like that sort of opening drama bit which Mm. Your mileage may vary, and uh, I think that slasher stuff is fine, but uh, it's it feels like his heart it, isn't it, in it this time. There's a couple of really the, good kills in, in it, it but it's mostly uh, it's not it's not the point of this, and it mm. feels like he'd rather not. I mean, it, it's there's nothing as painful as that uh, that horrendous scene in Halloween Kills. Which one? With um, the couple that was living in Michael's house. Oh yeah, that's like, that tragic. whole sequence is just terrible. Uh, yeah. but uh, you know. I like Corey's involvement in it, uh, and mm. it, it felt like it just abandoned all of its ideas at that point. It's like we're gonna we yeah. have to do the slasher thing. I had this really wonderful idea to look at what death does to a community. Yeah. But now we're just gonna have the death, and yeah. we're actually not gonna really address that in any kind of meaningful way. So yeah. there's a lot of promise that I feel it kind of wasted. I. I feel like that, but I feel like I wasn't... I feel like I felt that earlier than you did. I respect that this movie does something unexpected. I respect that this movie tried to come at it from a different angle. That is neither positive nor negative necessarily. It's just an an accurate observation of what they did. Mm. I don't think it really works. And for a couple of reasons, uh, I think a big part of the reason is that the idea that this town has been completely tainted... uh, is a little undermined by focusing all our attention on not just a new character, but only one character. Hmm. I think the fact that this is just becomes about just this one guy kind of undersells the basic conceit that Haddonfield as a whole 
is corrupted and, and almost yeah. cancerous uh, in the way that it has been sort of self-perpetuating the horror that led to these problems in the first place. Uh, and making it all about this one guy undermines that, especially since the movie doesn't actually commit to whether Corey was always a killer waiting to emerge mm-hmm. or whether he was pushed that way by the town. Because by not clarifying that he was pushed that way by the town, which is its own can of worms, you're allowing for the possibility that the town accurately called it, yeah. and then he's not actually a symptom of no, the town. It, and then I don't think... But by allowing that as a possibility, by being ambiguous, I think the movie mm. is not selling that point as I, well as I, it could. I don't think it is ambiguous. I think there's a very real psychological phenomenon of somebody mm. who accuses you of being a horrible person uh-huh. that eventually you will become that person. Uh-huh. That's that's a real thing. There's not a That's not an ambivalent thing. And the, and but I the think characters the idea, in the movie say... Uh-huh. They, they, she goes around talking to people saying... Who is Corey? Is Corey always like this? Is this some new thing? Mm. And she talks to multiple people, and the conclusion they come to is he was always like that. Mm. And yeah, and, that's, and but, then he becomes what they have dictated to him. Well, that's maybe. That's not them calling it. That's them transforming him. One could make that argument. Um, One could make that argument. However, I don't think the movie is... I think the movie is overly is unnecessarily ambiguous about that, in that mm. and I don't think the performance by Rowan Campbell... Um, actually helps that much. And I think some of the things that he says in that opening sequence mm. kind of supports the idea that he had violence in him earlier on. I think they left it to be mm. interpreted a little more than you're giving it credit for. And I think that kind of hurts the movie because it just feels non-committal yeah. to me. I, uh, the, the, and the other thing is I actually don't think his performance is all that great. Oh, I, I think it's fine. I, it's uh, okay. It's... I just find it. I find it just a little... It's just mannered to me a lot of the time, and I don't. I'm not always very good. Earlier on, yes, the more evil he gets, the less convinced I am. Yeah, uh, and I just it started losing me more and more at that point. Oh, okay. And then, and then, of course, I, just the I actual have... Halloween end stuff, I was unconvinced by. So, yeah, I, I, I think they took big swings. I don't think they did it that great. Uh, I, I don't think they they really uh, played Corey wrong. I think they actually mm-hmm. did him did him well. And I think yeah, we can is, disagree. I think uh, he's fine, uh, but. Uh, I watched this with uh, with my wife, Angie, and she had a really interesting interpretation mm. uh, in that she saw a little bit of a metaphor for Corey's queerness uh, okay. that this sort of you have evil in you is mm. this accusatory thing that a very uh, conservative community would yell at a young queer man. And it's about being persecuted in a really mm. closed-minded environment. Yeah. And, uh, you know, going off and sort of... In in this metaphor, like, meeting Michael is like... He's accepting his queerness. But I... uh, it, it doesn't play out as sort of like a revenge fantasy at that point. And ultimately it would be about how the... Uh, evil, oppressive community will ultimately win out. And that's a very uh, depressing message. It's a depressing message. I'm also not a huge fan of the... Maybe it's in there, but I'm not Mm. a huge fan of... uh, Evil is a metaphor for queerness. Mm. That's not great. I don't. I don't think that's something David Gordon Green was intentionally putting in there. Maybe but not. It's, but yeah, it's, it's, if it's in, if it's, if it's a reasonable read, and I can kind of see it, mm. I don't love that. Mm. I don't love that at all. Um, 
I think this is a, I think this is a very mixed bag. I think here's the thing about the Halloween movies. They're almost all mixed bags. Yeah. There's only uh, like three I like without any meaningful reservation yeah. and only That's, two that I think are legitimately great. That first one's good. First one's unassailable. <laughs> I appreciate I think how we don't, I think, we don't need any others. I think Rob that, Zombie comes yeah. super close with Halloween 2 to doing something genuinely awesome and special. I think Halloween H2O was pretty kick-ass, and I kind of like Halloween and Halloween Kills, the David Gordon Green versions, mm. for what they're doing. This one feels like we had an idea and we didn't execute it as... I, I, I see everything you're saying about it. I don't feel it's as nuanced as you're giving it credit for. I actually uh, find it rather clumsy. So th- there's that. I think it might just be my takeaway. There, there's a lot of... If you've seen a lot of David Gordon Green films, he has this uh, very particular skill of having natural conversations in very drab locales. You know, like, sure. Like grocery stores and gas stations yeah. and that sort of thing. And he's able to take scenes like that and make those uh, interiors feel like textured real life places yeah like not that he's he's like capturing the drabness but also the humanity that lives inside of it there's a really wonderful scene in in, uh the 2018 halloween yeah where it's just a bunch of people hanging around in a convenience store and they're just sort of like talking for like a minute Mm. and that's one of the best scenes in the movie because it's just people being people for a second Mm -hmm. and you can see that they've have this existing relationship and i feel that's uh in a lot of scenes in uh, Halloween ends as well, where people are in grocery stores, or just sort of hanging around yeah. the community, or going to bars, mm-hmm. and all of these places feel very lived in. And all I love these characters do feel like part of a community. I love the incidental characters that David. There's a there's a philosophy I have. I think you share it, mm. uh, where a mark of good writing is that every character, even if they only have one line, even if they have no lines, feels like a character. Yeah, feels like a real person. There's a lot of very minor characters or very short appearing characters in this film. Who are very memorable. I really like the part of uh, Corey's dad doesn't have much to say or do, uh-huh. but he's great. <laughs> I love that guy. I love yeah. that in the middle of all the horror, he's just sitting there watching Hard Target. That's right. It is. It's Hard Target. Yeah, I like that he's like when his wife yells at Corey and says horrible, horrible things, and she leaves the room. He genuinely says without any self-awareness or irony he tells Corey, i hope you find love and it's like oh god what a scene what a great moment that was he's great at those at that stuff that yeah. stuff is really i think that's where in in his halloween halloween kills and halloween ends i think that's where david gordon green has excelled is in making haddonfield feel like i'm gonna sound like a meg ryan rom-com feel like a character in the movie <laughs> To the extent uh, yeah. that I and, almost and that's my favorite stuff. Is, I really because that's that's what he's really good. I kind of wish he or someone would make a movie or even an anthology series that's just Haddonfield. Yeah, and whether or not Michael Myers that's shows up, what this movie was, I just kind of yeah. want it to be Nashville, but in Haddonfield, and we uh-huh. get a sense of the whole town in like a in like a um, what is it like. 32 short films about Springfield kind of way. <laughs> like, that's what I want. I feel like that's what he wants to do. I think he, that's what he wants to explore. And I feel that with Halloween Kills, his philosophy was, I want to do that, and I want to explore the mob mentality of this town, but it's also a sequel, and i got to have more and more and more and more kills, and the kills are just outrageous in that movie. And here, I think he was just exhausted with it. And he was like, I want to do a slasher, and I want to not have kills for as much as humanly possible and I want to really treat it as a drama and I don't object to that in principle mm. but I think in execution it doesn't 
work terribly well. Uh, and that frustrates me because I feel like all the pieces were there. So right. uh, I think it's time to move on. I think our points have been made. Um, I liked it a lot less than you did. All but right. I'm glad you liked it. I'm, I appreciate no, I, all the things you know, like about it. I don't think it quite worked, but there you go. No, I, 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 no. I don't think it falls together very well. But I, I appreciate no. that this, more than the previous film, had not just an idea, but also mm. uh, an interesting way of communicating all of that. Fair enough. What do you want to talk about next? Uh, you saw a film I didn't, so why don't you tell me about it? Okay, that one. so I want to talk about another horror movie. Uh, this is the latest film from Dario Argento, mm. who also made some of the most exciting and influential films of the 1970s. And then he stopped. <laughs> and then he stopped making movies. good movies for a really long time. Uh, Dario Argento started off as a screenwriter. Uh, he's credited with, didn't he correct uh, Once Upon a Time in the West? I think it's one yeah, of the ones he he's, wrote. He's, yeah, yeah. One, of, one of the many screenwriters on that one. Yeah. Uh, but uh, when he started making movies on his own, he really focused on what's called the giallo genre. Uh, giallos, and we've talked about them many times in our various podcasts, but if you're new, uh, giallos are a genre mostly done in Italy. Uh, which is basically combining slasher movies and detective movies. We're going to have a murder mystery, but instead of just solving one crime, we're trying to catch a brutal serial killer who is killing people in elaborate, sometimes operatic ways. It's a very operatic genre. It's very larger than life. Uh, the rules of reality don't necessarily always apply. Uh, but there's some wonderful examples, and many of them were directed by Dario Argento. Mm. He's best known nowadays for directing Suspiria, which is not a giallo. It's actually just a supernatural uh, uh, phantasmagoria. Mm. But that's a great movie. But if you want to see some great jelly, that's the, that's the uh, it, plural, uh, from Dario Argento, Deep Red. Deep Red's very good. Deep Red's one of the best horror movies ever made. I also highly recommend The Bird with the Crystal Plumage. Mm. I also highly Four recommend... Four Flies and Grey Velvet. Four Flies uh, and Grey Velvet. And, I'm not a huge fan of Four Flies. And, uh, Cat of Nine Tales. Cat of Nine Tales is, is awesome. I also really like his later movie, Opera. Cat of Nine Tales is really relevant because he's actually revisiting some similar territory in his latest movie. Now, Dario Argento was a hit machine throughout the 70s and pretty much the 80s and then started to peter out in the 90s and his movies started to get a little less inspired, uh, a little less interesting, and then... Yeah, his, his budgets fell. He's kind yeah. of working a lot more automatically. And Dario Argento was... One of the things he was most famous for was his really outlandish camera work. Mm -hmm. There's this incredible sequence in the movie Opera. I love it so much. And if you look at the behind the scenes, the bizarre whirling crane they created for the shot is nuts. Uh, but there's a plot point in the movie Opera where it's basically the Phantom of the Opera. There's someone who's like obsessed with an opera singer and they're killing everyone in order to, to improve their career. But the gag in opera is every time the, the killer kills someone, the person that they're obsessed with, they abduct them mm -hmm. and they tie them up and they force them to watch the murder and then they let him go. And then they do it over and over and over. It's so fucked up. But there's a scene in that movie early on in which uh, a bunch of crows that are being used for this production, this opera production, uh, he runs, he like runs afoul of them. And there's a plot point which feels completely made up. If this is based on anything, I'd be shocked. But even if it is, they go really far with it. That crows never forget. <laughs> so there's a bit at the end where they're like, we know the killer is in the audience somewhere. Release the crows! And then the crows fly around the theater until they zero in on the one killer. We kind of like that scene in Alfred Hitchcock's Young and Innocent where there's this giant pan and we finally see the killer where they are in the room through an entire crowd. That camera like swirls around the theater. It's actually done in camera. It's all one shot. 
it's an incredible virtuoso thing. Later on in his career, when he started losing money and he started having to shoot movies on digital, his movies didn't look very good anymore. So even when, even though some of the bad movies or sillier movies he made mm. had this fantastic cinematic grandeur to them uh, that kind of made up for that and kind of made you enjoy even those elements, a lot of his stuff didn't have that anymore. And kind of all of the tools that made his stuff work were kind of taken away from him. Mm. And that's me being generous because also some, some he made just made some real turkeys. Well, I was gonna say he just I, made I think, some real. Yeah. I'm, I'm talking about like the things that could have made those turkeys fun. He didn't have that, and all we were left with was a bunch of turkeys. A couple of them are like semi-functional murder mysteries, but they're not I, I, particularly. I remember good. not hating Mother of Tears, but it is bad. Um, yeah, he did one. I think it was called the Card Player, which was about a serial killer who was killing people. Uh, based off of an online poker game, which oh, culminates in a scene where people are like the killer and like his victim or would be victim are tied to a railroad track while a train's coming, and like he'll only untie them if she can beat him at poker. But it's still video poker, so they've got like a fucking laptop. It's so silly. Like I can't take that. You no, you can't do that. Um. So Dario Argento hasn't made a good movie in a really long time. Until now. I don't believe you. I like this yeah. movie. Tell, this is right. this Tell is not one of his best, but it is rather good. Uh, the movie is called Dark Glasses, uh, and I want to make sure I get the actress's name right here because it's all it's all about her, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Um Let me see here. Bada bing, bada boom. Uh Elenia Pastorelli. Uh, she plays a sex worker who uh, is attacked by a serial killer who attacks sex workers. Uh, she escapes. She she runs. Uh, and he chases her in his car. And this leads to a horrible accident, which takes away her eyesight and also kills the parents of a young boy. Oh, geez. So it's pretty brutal and terrible. And the killer gets away on top of everything. So, such a common theme in uh, this week's reviews. Yeah, right. Uh, she is trying to get her life back on track. She's trying to learn how to live and be self sufficient as a blind person. She's also trying to connect to this child who, you know, it's not really her fault, but she feels responsible in some way. And the child is not being treated very well at like the Catholic school that he's been like thrown into. There's. There's this really horrible scene where she goes to the kid and she just gives him like this sort of gesture. She gets him a Nintendo Switch. And then the nuns are just, she's just like, how is he doing? And the nun is just like, he makes us despair. <laughs> it's like, Jesus <laughs> Christ, lady. What the fuck? Um, so, that's, that's a very kind of giallo line, though. It, it is, yeah. it is. And uh, he, uh, he, the, the little boy ends up like running away from them and trying to spend, like trying to basically live with her. Mm. Uh, meanwhile, the killer is still out there and he's trying to track her down and that will come to a head later. It's a very straightforward film in a lot of ways. There's really not a lot of plot to it. Like, I've pretty much described most of the plot. I mean, plot has never yeah. been a big uh, priority no. for Dario no. Argento. Sometimes they have really good hooks. Like, mm -hmm. there's the opening of Deep Red is amazing because it's, um, it's actually kind of similar to the beginning of Scanners where there's um, a person in, like, a big fucking grandiose theater and it's full of people and it's a it's a some sort of a symposium on psychic phenomena mm. and here's there's a woman there and she's like i i am a psychic i can read minds 
and I can prove it right now. I will read the mind of someone in the audience. And she reads the mind of someone in the audience and she realizes that they're a murderer. <laughs> and she has yeah. to stop. And then later that night, the killer, who has been outed to a psychic, has to hunt down and kill that psychic, and someone witnesses that murder, and that's what kicks everything off. That is a great hook. That is one hell of a way to open a movie. I love that. This one is actually more grounded. In fact, the movie isn't an outlandish giallo at all. It's actually very, uh, very subtle in a lot of ways, especially for Argento. The only thing about it that is actually like super... Like pulse pounding and intense, uh, is the score by Arnaud uh, Repetini, who does a lot of like house music type stuff that I'm not familiar with. Um, that's a goblin score. It's done oh. in a modern way, but it's got that goblin did a lot of the music for Argento's earlier films, and they've got this really kind of like intense sort of Wagner by way of dance music. Mm. Uh, which is just super great, and it fits Argento's work beautifully. I, I love that uh, yeah. Argento asked Goblin. Goblin's a, a yeah. band, uh, yeah. like to communicate that there were witches in Suspiria. It's a witch story. <laughs> yeah. It's like how and that you can. There's like interviews with Goblin, and they're like, "Yeah, we." Uh, they said we, we need to say there's like witches. So how do we like do witch music? Mm. But we also do this our electronic thing, and it's really repetitive. Uh, I, I have a great idea. We'll just say, there's a witch on the soundtrack. <laughs> like, there, and there's like people whispering on the soundtrack saying, it's a witch, <laughs> look out, it's a witch. It's like, that That was their solution. I know, it's fucking And hilarious. in a weird way, there's, I admire the elegance of that. Well, there's, there's not a, Dario Gento is not usually a subtle filmmaker. He's usually oh, God, very no. brash and in your face. And, and rather than try to provide some sort of subtle counterpoint to that, Typically, the best approach is to just go for it and accept that he's a maximalist filmmaker. Mm. But this is actually a pretty mature Argento film, and in fact, a lot of the movie is just a character piece with someone who is trying to get their life back together. There's like a moment uh, where she realizes that she's like not making any money right now, and she's mm. like, I have to go back to work, and I have to make the fact that I am now blind... The new gimmick for me is a sex worker. That's I have to find people that are actually looking for that, and that has yeah, to yeah. be okay. And she finds it. And anyone in the movie who is at all judgmental of her career is portrayed as either literally the villain uh-huh. or an asshole, which I appreciate. You know, it's not a, it's not a judgmental movie the way even Argento could be. Um, the relationship between her and the young boy uh, who is played by Jin Yu Zhang. Uh, he's a he's a, plays a Chinese immigrant. Mm-hmm. Um, is actually very sweet, and just the pitch of hey, remember Gloria? Well, now she's a blind sex worker, and instead of fighting the mob, she's fighting a serial killer. Also, a good pitch. <laughs> uh, there's a lot of really creepy sequences where. Uh, you know, they have to flee, and ostensibly she's taking care of a kid, but the kid's taking care of her as well. Mm. Um, some good solid scares in it. Nothing too alarmingly cinematic, but there is some really lovely camera work in it. Um, it doesn't call attention to itself the way most of Argento's best films do. Yeah, and that's unfortunate. It's just playing out loud. It's just playing, but it's <clears throat> but it is. Mature. It is efficient. It tells a good story. The ending, like the very ending, is a weird downer that I really like. Okay. It actually, like, it, it doesn't feel... That's not like a happy ending. It's also not a super tragic ending. It's just sort of a bittersweet... Oh. 
Like, I love that. That's actually like a really, it's what we might call a very European ending for a movie. <laughs> um, but yeah, this is a rock solid thriller. It's really excellent. Um, what you might want to be aware that one of the supporting characters in it is played by Asia Argento, who has had mm-hmm. accusations uh, about mm-hmm. her, and I'm, it's hard to begrudge her working with her dad. You know, yeah, like and, it's and they've like, worked together plenty of times. Yeah, it's past, it's with something like you know, if you don't want to support her, fair enough. But if anyone's going to work with her, I guess it would be her dad. Yeah. So I, I do that. Do with that what you will. She doesn't yeah, play a huge it, part in the movie. I guess but if, she's if you're it. if you're grossed out by seeing Asia Argento, yeah, then you know. Uh, she's she's not a huge part of the movie. Uh, she's fine in it if you want to get gauge her performance. Uh, but um, yeah, that that's in there. Uh, if that's a deal breaker for you, fair. And if it's not, this is a solid thriller. So I will say, welcome back, Dario Argento. And if this <laughs> if this is you getting ready to make more good movies, please do. And if this is your last movie, you went out on a good one because he's old now. He's like you've had like a he's really in his long 80s career at this point. Yeah. yeah, he's I think he's eighty two uh, right now. Yeah, so like seriously, that he's eighty two and made one of the better films he's made in decades. Awesome, thank you oh, for God. that. Maybe, maybe well, uh, well played. Maybe he's you know. Filmmakers, you know, they don't just mature as artists, they mature as people. Yeah. So it's entirely possible that he's just a calmer guy now. Yeah, maybe. I mean, they still want to make like the mayhem the they, way he used to. There's still scary deaths mm. in this movie, like really bad things happen in this movie. But yeah, compared to something like Phenomena, where Jennifer Connolly can fight, control bugs, can with control her mind. bugs with her mind and uses that power to help an entomologist played by Donald Pleasance. Catch a serial killer. Please see Phenomena. That movie is wild. I guarantee you do not know where it is going. Because the <laughs> ending of that movie is awesome. Anyway. That's Dark Glasses. Uh, let's, right. talk about a, let's, talk about, uh, let's talk about a new film from Park Chan-wook. Let's talk about the Park Chan-wook You movie. actually just saw this tonight. So I'm very curious about your initial um, reaction from Decision yeah, to Leave. Decision to Leave. Oh, uh, yeah. Um, uh, Park Chan-wook... Uh, is uh, has done some really great movies and also some iffy ones. Um, his like he kind of became better known in the United States with uh, curiously the second part of what is now called the Vengeance trilogy. Yeah, uh, it started with uh, Sympathy for Mr. Vengeance was the first one. Mm-hmm. The second one was called Old Boy, which won a lot of awards in like two thousand three. Yeah, and then he did a follow up called Lady Vengeance. All three of those movies are quite good, and they are brutal tragedies yeah they're like operas in how sort of how far yeah. they go with the the violence and the the tragedy old boy is wild old, old boy is is terrific if you've never seen old boy and you've never had an opportunity to please do spike lee remade it it is bad <laughs> i didn't see spike lee spike remake. lee spike lee hasn't talked too much about his experience making old boy but here's what i'll say if memory serves it is the only Spike Lee movie where he doesn't call it a Spike Lee joint it's, in the yeah, credits. I was going to say that. It's his version of disowning the film without mm-hmm. actually taking his name mm-hmm. off of it. It did uh, not work good. But the original Old Boy is fucking weird and absolutely <laughs> electric. It's a great film. Yeah. Uh, he, he did this little, this little low-budget sort of relationship drama in the mid-2000s called I'm a Cyborg, but that's okay. Uh, and uh, I heard that's good, but I never saw that one. It, it's all right. It's, okay. it's like downbeat. He he became known as sort of like really stylish and energetic with yeah. those vengeance movies. Uh, this is almost the opposite of that. It's actually really kind of you know low-budget mm-hmm. and you know, kind of drab uh, interiors. 
Uh, he made a movie called Thirst, which is about a priest who becomes a vampire. I still haven't seen uh, that. Fun no idea, idea, bad movie. Oh, I like really? It, I heard a lot of people like that movie. Because they don't do anything with that. He's no, a priest who's a vampire. What are you going to do about that? He, he's a vampire. Oh. And, and he falls in love, and he gives up being a priest because he's a vampire. You're the only person I've ever talked to who didn't say that that was a good movie. I mean, oh, I don't uh, talk about it with everyone, but mm. of the, like, dozen people I've heard mention that, and most of them are big fans. That's interesting. I wonder if I'll like it. Uh, you'll have to see it yourself. I'll have to um, check it out. Then he actually did one film in America uh, did called a, yeah. Stoker. did an English-language film called Stoker, which... Uh, really stylish but incredibly empty uh it's and it, it's a, a just like halloween it's sort of about a legacy of violence being passed yeah. from person to person it's about uh an uncle who is uh returning back to a family after a very long mm. uh absence and it's matthew good plays yeah, that character. matthew good plays that character uh the mom is played by nicole kidman the daughter is played by mia vajikovska and he immediately keys in that Luca just wants to hang out. <laughs> Luca is Luca when I sometimes when we record, Luca Luca's likes to like yeah. Luca likes to reach up and like try to like pet my arm with his paw, like, mm. hey, I wanna go up. Wants attention. So right? I gotta pick him up and I gotta snuggle him. So if you hear any purrs, it's because Luca it's wanted not, to talk about Park Chan Luca. Not, not a loud purring cat. Though. Anyway, long story short, Luca is like a super melodramatic Family crime and murder thing. I appreciate you, you, how you wild said, it is. You mean Stoker? Stoker. What you, you I said. Say. You said Luca. The name. Yeah, of that cat. Pixar movie is is a really <laughs> wild murder streak. Stoke, Stoker. I'm thinking is about some, my cat. Cause he's it has really some wild, cute. stylish stuff. I've. It feels like uh, Park Chan Wook mm. was like trying new style stuff rather than mm. had any, any interest in telling that story. And it's really stylish. I wouldn't tell mm. anyone to see it. It's just mm. not a particularly profound work. Yeah. Uh, he, then he uh, made another film uh, in, the in Handmaiden. Korea called The Handmaiden. That movie's which, great. Which is a really good movie. It's a really wonderful uh, feminist parable about yeah. uh, a handmaiden who's waiting on this rich woman, but it turns out she's part of this big scam who's trying to scam them out. But uh, the, the handmaiden and the maiden are, and are falling in love throughout all of this. And yeah. also there's, there's huge like, uh, revelations. Like, yeah, this like are... crime ring that they're connected to. Oh, it's, it's, so, and it's, it goes in, in some really interesting it, directions. It's one of the most amazingly plotted movies mm. of the last 10 years. Like if you do not know the story, mm. you do not know where it's going and it's all falls together yeah. beautifully. I love it's fucked up, but it's great. Mm. And now he's got a new film and this is actually compared to films like the handmaiden or mm. Stoker or old boy. Uh, very reserved for Park Chan Wook, I think. Uh, this is uh, it's it's I think it's Park Chan Wook trying to do Hitchcock. It has that vibe to <laughs> a it, like bit, it's, yeah. it's a straight up noir. This one yeah. uh, and uh, it's uh, about a police detective who is suffering from insomnia. Uh, he works all week and then goes home on the weekends to, mm. to his wife, and their marriage is suffering because yeah. he can't sleep and he's a workaholic. Yeah, uh, they have some pretty frank conversations about, hey, we're going to make this work, but clearly things are bad. Yeah, uh, he gets involved in this murder case. A rich guy has fallen off of a, a peak out in the wilderness, like a mountain yeah. peak, but in a somewhat and suspicious way. In a suspicious way, and uh, so he uh, starts this. Our cop starts to investigate and finds uh, his wife, and his wife is played by. Um, uh, let me look up the actress's name. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, Tong Wei. Tong Wei. Yeah. Uh, Tongue way from Lust Caution, the Ang Lee movie. Yeah, I'm gonna wash my hands because okay. I get I and, have uh, for all over them. But go on. Yeah, and she is uh, very compelling to our uh, our main character, and she pays attention to the way he operates in ways he's not used to being listened to. 
she has, and it becomes a little bit unclear if she is manipulating the case or she just is on the same wavelength as this guy. And they start to fall in love. But all the while during their courtship, like he goes into her house and starts cooking her meals and they spend a lot of time together and he's free to do this because he's just out of the house for a week week at a time. Mm -hmm. And uh, she starts doing more and more vaguely suspicious things. Like he's got one of those big cork boards in his apartment where he has like unsolved cases pinned up. He takes his work home with him and she starts pulling pictures off and burning them saying, you've solved this case now. There's a, a bit where she helps him solve one of the cases and burns the pictures. Uh-huh. Like, wait a minute, why are you really burning these pictures? Yeah, is there is there something more to this? Mm. And that's the question. Are they actually falling in love? Or is she manipulating him? Mm. Is it both? Mm. And the movie is kind of bifurcated. There's like a first half and a second half, and they're very different. And we really can't talk about that in too much detail without... Giving away, too giving much away big story, plot but points, yeah. but yeah, it's one of those films. It's almost like Vertigo in that way, where like the first yeah. half is kind of one mystery, the second half is kind of another mystery with similar characters. Yeah, I, was, I was thinking uh, why compared him to, to Hitchcock. I was thinking of Vertigo yeah. a lot in this movie. Yeah, uh, there's even a few moments where uh, they're talking. She's behaving the same way Kim Novak does mm-hmm. in in Vertigo. You know, talking in this very sort of spooky, far away, vaguely romantic kind of a way, but everything might have a double meaning. Yeah, um, and. Uh, Things are also being lost in translation because she's Chinese and he's yeah. Korean, and uh, Korean is her second language, so she doesn't get a. She constantly says, "I'm not getting a lot of words right." Yeah, and a lot of their dialogue is handled through like an online translator. Yeah. There's a lot of nuances to that kind of dialogue mm. that you and I are probably not picking up on because we know neither Korean nor Chinese. Yeah, yeah. Um, and but the dialogue that we get is full of things like um, you know, our detective character talking to his partner and saying, I need you to talk to her, but use simple words. Yeah. And they actually practice what simple words to use so mm-hmm. that the intention will be made clear to someone who isn't a native speaker. Um, there's a lot of that subtlety that pisses me off that I can't get because I know it's really intricate. Yeah, yeah. And, and because I can to, pick up on so many intricacies already. Yeah, we'd have to I be, know there's uh, more. We'd have to be fluent in Korean to really get yeah. what's going on. That, that's, uh, it's a frustrating thing that um, when you watch films in another uh, another culture, whether they are dubbed or subtitled, whether they're done well or done badly, mm-hmm. there's always nuances of language that are not oh, going to yeah, come yeah. across. We're, we're, we're be, getting translation. We're getting a translation. And they're doing the best they can, but there's just... Think, it's like, it's still, how, our, how do you it's translate, still our best option. Like, how do you yeah. translate a pun? Like, right, a lot right. of puns don't specifically translate. You have to really manipulate the words in order to bring out a pun, but it's not going to be the same pun. It's not going to have the same impact or weight or mm-hmm. the same double meaning sometimes. And it's just, this is this is why, like, when there are, like, something like, hey, there's a new translation of Beowulf. Mm-hmm. That could be a whole new book. Yeah, it just yeah. the the word choices that when, people when, uh, use are when, very prominent. When Seamus Heaney did that famous translation of Beowulf, I remember when that came like, out. That, yeah. that came. I was like late nineties, I think, and yeah, that was a big deal at the time. Huge. Yeah, it was like it reading was, Beowulf all over again. Yeah, it's a totally it's different a brand vibe. New thing. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I, I'm I'm not going to complain about the fineries of translation because we kind of have the best we can. You know, subtitles mm-hmm. I think are sort of ideal because we get to hear the original uh, language, we get and, to hear the performance. In this case, where it, I feel like it's actually part of the plot, mm. that those nuances of language, I feel like we're we're gonna miss something no matter what we do, but we're doing the best we can, and yeah. it's still great. Mm. I love this movie. <laughs> this movie is uh, really interesting. 
Uh, it's really it's, it's really bitter and really sad, and, and it's, it's a and very it's effective Chen, mystery. Yeah, it's Park Chan Wook, so he's actually doing a lot of really stylish things. There's a lot of like mm. quick zooms and weird, you know, interesting candle, mm. uh, gorgeous overhead shots. And, yeah, and, there, yeah, there's yeah, this one shot um, that's from like a hundred feet up, looking straight down, and yeah. it's like. They either had to build a tower something, or a or crane a, or something. This is a static vi- shot. Yeah, either that's uh, the best drone ever, or just, they yeah, just had to. Completely yeah, still. A, I'll bet they had a crane. Or they you know, yeah. are using digital effects to steady the shot. But Maybe yeah. that might be the case, but it's it's impeccable. Mm-hmm. Like it's really gorgeously photographed. The music's really really great mm-hmm. as well. Uh, I, I like yeah. the uh, the main characters. I like sort of the way you're not really sure mm-hmm. where uh, the the. Um, we're the one character like how suspicious is she like we yeah. don't really know what her mystery is, is for a is long she, time is she is uh, she his true love or is she a femme fatale or is she both or yeah. neither uh, uh, and it's, she keeps that mystery alive really well I, I yeah. feel like uh, it starts to lose itself in genre tropes as the film goes on mm. because, and it actually becomes kind of predictable after a while oh really uh, it, it's long it's about 2 hours and 18 minutes mm-hmm. uh, and I feel like it starts repeating a lot of points by the time they get to the end. It's like, we, we know this already, so why are we introducing like this other little plot element I feel to like, kind of reinforce that? I feel like the the sort of the mirror quality of the mm-hmm. story is, is there to sort of enhance it, to show mm-hmm. that these things aren't just a thing that happened, that they're a pattern. That these are uh, stories these people are going through multiple times. Yeah. And when you go through them multiple times, you realize there may have been more truth behind them mm-hmm. than you might not otherwise have realized. I I, th- I can appreciate that it's a little repetitive, but I think it's weaponized pretty well. Okay. Yeah. That's, I dug yeah. it. I, I thought okay. that worked in this particular instance, but I see your point. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I, I think, and yeah, I think once it starts to, ex- like, explain the fineries of the plot and what was actually going on in this one scene Mm -hmm. kind of takes away from a lot of the texture that, you know, just sort of having it gave us. Mm. Like there's a a scene early on where one of uh, the cops uh, partners Mm. goes to the suspect's apartment and Uh. is really drunk and like knocks stuff over. Yeah. It's like, that's like a really interesting comment on sort of the brusqueness of the police, how clumsy they are. Yeah. Cause it's not a, he wasn't there to abuse her. He was just there trying to, uh, Mm get some information but he was so intoxicated that he just completely bungled it yeah and it's like this is how good cops are in this town so it makes sense that you know the one good detective would be venerated yeah uh later on that scene is uh like restaged in a little bit we revisit that from a different angle yeah Yeah. and and i i feel like well but that made that scene a lot less interesting now but i still think because now it's part of the plot rather than it is part of the 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 plot of the movie it is part of the plot but it's still consistent within character so mm. i think the original interpretation is still mostly valid even though as we reframe it we realize there was more to it mm. i can't get into more detail because yeah. it's a murder mystery story and i can't i can't give talk about all the clues and all the big revelations that would be rude uh it's not about like sort of a general sweep of plot the way like the general events of halloween are it's actually mm. very there's there's a lot of intricacy to the way that the murder or murders in decision to leave are actually formed yeah. in a very almost Sherlock Holmes kind of level of like bizarre detail that I love. Uh-huh. I think that's really, really fun. I miss when there were more movies and stories about like, it's not just like, yes, I wanted to kill my boss. And so I waited outside his house. And then when he was alone, I killed him. It's like, no, 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 no. 
I want murder mysteries where you have to like plan it out for like six months and you have to like work out timetables and like you come up with every it's like it's like a dilemma for murder like half the movie is just about planning the perfect murder mm-hmm. and the second half is about how you didn't think of everything and you fucked it all up and this isn't quite that but there is a level of intricacy to the plot that is a little similar and I really that's one of my favorite things oh, <laughs> I love that I love that kind of murder mystery that really spoke to me but it, it's one of those murder mysteries but the actual human drama is actually really sweet and quiet and the actual relationship uh, between Tang Wei and is it Park Hai Il uh, hmm. plays uh, uh, the lead detective I think uh, Park, yeah Park Hai Il uh, they're so sweet <laughs> When when they're you feel like you can trust their relationship, which maybe you can and maybe you can't. Um, it, I I want those kooky kids to get together. <laughs> they're, oh yeah, they're very they're it's a very calm, mature kind of attraction. It's not like Basic Instinct where it's like I they might be the killer, but I'm in so much lust I can't help myself. It's actually based off of like longing and you know parts of your soul missing and i don't know i i appreciate that this is a story about a cop who may or may not be selling himself out or corrupting himself or letting himself be suckered in Mm -hmm. not because of his loins not because he has to pay off his drug habit it's it's a really chaste relationship yeah it's it's about it's about someone who genuinely cares and believes Mm -hmm. in things and that level of genuine almost heroic decency might be his undoing Mm. that's really tragic (laughs) for me that's really tragic i i didn't want to see them get together because this is a case of uh, um of uh, the the criminal being very obviously a criminal from the start well Uh, or 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 is that a red herring oh i suppose so yeah the 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 tongue way character never once feels genuine she's suspicious all the time so you're waiting for the big revelation so that the yeah. fact that he's falling in love with her is clearly all set up well there's there's going they're watching it for a reason going, yeah, I'll say a, that. a shoe yeah. is going to drop exactly here, how it drops so is the question it, if the movie was uh staged a little bit more like a straight-up romance then maybe i could root for their relationship but it's not i would love it, it, it. it's like a murder mystery i would love it if like the murder was the meat cute it's basically yeah. like, and this person died, and you were a suspect, and uh, it turns out you weren't, and then we had a nice relationship, and we got married, and then we never got back to the murder. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's never a thing. That would be an amazing movie, and I would love how subversive that is. This isn't it. The plot keeps going because there's more crime and murder to come, yeah. but I don't want to ruin exactly how or who or what. But um, I see your point. All right. Yeah, I see your point. It's... You liked it's, it less than I did. It's fine. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I'm not high on everything that Park Chan Wook does. Uh, I know. Mm. I know some people are. Um, um, I haven't. If, if if I know he's, I've heard he's made films that are not that great. Stoker mm. is the one that for me is like I still admire it, but mm. it's not particularly interesting. It's just yeah. kind of handsomely presented and and a little bizarre. Um, and uh, but yeah, mostly I think his work is really really great. Um, so yeah, I don't know. I, I, I don't know. I really dug this one. Okay. What can I say? <laughs> All right. Well, you, um, can, you can say you dug it. You're a critic. Well, again, you get to say that. Uh, there's a, right. there's a film I didn't quite dig. Uh-huh. Uh, and it's a film from another filmmaker who is considered one of the finest, uh, in their trade. Claire Denis. I, Claire Denis, who already had a film earlier this year. Yeah. It's a, it's a twofer for Claire Denis. It's a Claire. Two made, uh, during lockdown. Um. Claire, Claire Dune. Dune. Yeah. Um, the, the movie is called Stars at Noon. 
And I can't help. I have to do this. Uh, the stars at no, noon geez. is quite jejun. <laughs> at least it's by Claire Denny. Um, stars at noon is... Uh, I'm glad that this podcast is here. You're welcome. Because I know you needed that outlet. Who that else moment. is going to let There's, me do that like, and you, not you, cut you, it you out? You couldn't go on like KCRW and do that. <sighs> I was going to. I did go on KCRW this week and I thought about doing it and I was like, No. Let us let us let us treat KCRW's press play with some dignity. <laughs> um, but no, this film stars Margaret Qualley. I like Margaret Qualley. Margaret Qualley's a great actress. She's really dynamic in this. Like I really think she's a she's a she can carry a film all mm-hmm. by herself, and I haven't seen her do that before. And here she does. Uh, she plays an investigative reporter. Uh, in Nicaragua, the original novel this is based on was set during uh, the political strife in Nicaragua in the early '80s. Mm. Clergyny upset uh, sets it today, and I'm kind of but unfamiliar. It's still, it's still Nicaragua. I'm a little unfamiliar with the political situation in Nicaragua, so I don't know if it's an accurate representation of what's going on. Uh, she sets it during the pandemic, so everyone's wearing masks and stuff, and that leads to some some plot points, but they don't really interact with it, and it's never really like key to anything it's not about like there's a travel ban because of the pandemic which actually would have made sense with the plot but it's just kind of incidental i think she had to shoot in the pandemic and decided to run with it um marco holly's investigative reporter she's in nicaragua she did a couple of stories that pissed a lot of people off and now she's stuck here her passport doesn't work and she can't make enough money to even get a plane ticket if it did. Mm. She is essentially imprisoned in Nicaragua and she can't do her job. No one's interested in the kind of story she's telling out of Nicaragua right now. And as a result, the only way that she can make a living is through sex work. Okay. Um, and um, she's not happy. She's She feels very trapped and she's just doing, she's making all the moves she can. She's manipulating everyone she can to try to find a way out of Nicaragua because there's yeah. apparently a lot of political strife going on, um, a lot of corrupt police running about. Uh, there's an election coming up that everyone feels is just going to be put off and never actually happen. Uh, it's 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 a bad scene. And again, I don't know how accurate that is in Nicaragua right now. She meets uh, uh, a man who is ostensibly there uh, to pursue some kind of clandestine corporate interest. He's played by an actor named Joe Alwyn. They hit it off at a bar. He employs her services. Uh, and um, they keep running into each other as she's trying to manipulate her way out of Nicaragua. And she's trying to explain to him how much trouble he's in. Problem is, in helping him realize that like the police are following him around and he shouldn't trust anybody, everybody who was already mad at her is now even less inclined to help her. Because she's tooling around with this guy, and he's got some kind of agenda, like criminal or, per- or something, or- criminal or some sort of uh, maybe political machination. Maybe the company that he's working for wants to invest in a thing that would be against the interests of the government. They're very vague to a point where we've we're now past the point where we're ta- what he's doing is kind of irrelevant to the plot. Mm. And we're at the point now where it's like, you know, if you gave me a couple of sentences that would really be less distracting and just make everything a little mm. a little cleaner at this point. They're just vague for the sake of vague for a while. Um, so they're both stuck there now. He's been uh, kicked out of his hotel. He calls his hotel. They said, oh, yeah, you checked out. Like, no, I didn't. Well, your stuff isn't here. 
And he's like, oh, so he doesn't have his passport either. Oh, jeez. Okay. He's got some money, thank goodness, but that's that's about it. There's like a part where they're just like, they try to buy a car from a guy and then like they, they put it down payment. He says, great, I just had to fix like, I don't know, the alternator or something like that and they'll be ready tomorrow. And then when they wake up, the car is on fire in the parking lot. Like they're <laughs> fucked. They're completely <laughs> trapped. And now all they've got is each other. And fortunately, they're really into each other and like to fuck a lot. So there's that. And so uh, they is it, is it at least sexy? It's it's <laughs> so it, one of those like you know dangerous criminal airport novel like mm-hmm. sensuous kind I of a movie. I wish it was or, more uh, airport novel. This I think this needed an injection of pulp. Right. I think Claire Denis is playing it like really serious to the story's mm-hmm. detriment. Um, I think it is kind of sexy. I think Margaret Qualley has a natural sensuousness in this film. Mm. That she is, she's using it. She's weaponizing it. She's using it to allure men. She's trying to manipulate men uh-huh. in order to get what she wants from them. In order to leave, because she's trapped here. It's 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 part of her power. Um, and I think Claire Denis is very uh, good about presenting that without making it exploitative. Okay. At all, it's just basically like, hey, look at the way she's rubbing her feet together. That's like mm. a sign of potential sexual interest if you look at it a certain way, that kind of okay. thing. And then you would read it and you go, oh, so it's a sexy moment. And I then know. it is a sexy moment because it's sexy. And mm. the big, the big problems of this movie are, are twofold. One, the story is vague to a fault. I've already said that. I think it's well, just unclear a, a lot of it. But that that's. Claire Denis storytelling story. Agreed. You've seen Claire Denis movies. I have in the past. Uh, not and, uh, not as many as I would like, yeah, but I have. Uh, Usually, clear. however, there comes a point over the film where things, if if they're never actually explicitly said, they have pretty much fallen together, and by two thirds of the way through, you've gotten your bearings. Yeah, usually, uh, yeah, it takes a while into a Claire Denis movie before you have all the information. Yeah, something I, like uh, uh, if you saw High Life. Yeah, that that one is a little bit of an exception. We're actually mm-hmm. given a lot more information in that one. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, the first Claire Denis movie I saw was The Intruder, L'Entru, and uh, mm. that's like has like somebody finds us like a severed human heart out in the snow, and oh, then, cool. like kicks off this whole uh, intrigue and mystery, and yeah. we keep cutting back and forth. We don't know where we are in the story, where we are in time. Yeah, it takes you almost to the very end before you realize you have all the pieces, and that's the kind of storytelling mm. Claire Denis seems to like and it works really well i think beau travail is excellent mm. uh I, I saw white material i think that movie's fantastic again i have seen unfortunately only like a fraction of her film she's made a lot of films since yeah, the 1980s yeah. uh but I, what i've seen i've really really enjoyed until now and yeah, it's not it really badly done i think that the 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 intrigue that uh the story hinges upon mm needs a bit more definition in order for the threats to be more clear. They're a little existential for a while, and I'm fine with that, but even later on, they're just vague, I think, to a fault. The biggest problem, I could have lived with that. That's not a huge deal. The biggest problem is Margaret Qualley and Joe Alwyn have sexual chemistry, but no other chemistry. (laughs) Like, when they're just talking, he cannot keep up with her as an actor. She's really interesting and really like just deeply embedded in this character and really knows the world that she's in. And his whole thing is that he's a little out of his element, which is a good place to sort of meet him. It's not a character. Mm. It's just vaguely befuddled for a lot of it. And maybe he's up to no good. Maybe he's perfectly innocent. We will find out eventually over the course of the film. But... 
he's not actually contributing as much to her in the dialogue and the conversations. And the whole movie hinges upon them, like, kind of falling for each other in the foxhole, basically. Like, yeah, in this yeah. moment of intense desperation, all they've got is each other and they connect. Whether that is a lasting connection or just, you know, absolute desperation, who can say? Uh, but he's not bringing his half of the relationship. He's not bringing his half of the performance. I think Joe Alwyn is really outmatched here. Mm -hmm. Um, And I don't think it's Margaret Qualley's job to act down to his level. (laughs) No. no, I think she's, I think it's, she's doing what she can to carry the film on her own because most of the movie relies on her. Mm -hmm. But whenever it's a two hander, which is a lot of the movie, especially the second half, He's just not that interesting to watch. Oh, that's he's just bad. kind of a he's just kind of there, and the movie needed him. It relies on that relationship for the drama, the romance, the sex. Again, the sex. I believe. I believe <laughs> that they want to have sex. I don't believe that they want to talk. I don't believe that she has any interest in this guy outside of sex. Mm. And unfortunately, the movie depends on that, and that doesn't work. That just doesn't work. That's too bad. It's a bummer. I, yeah. I, I, I don't like hearing that there's a bad Claire Denis movie in the world. I mean, it's not right? awful. God knows there are, like, way worse movies. I, I hesitate even to call it bad. All right. But I don't think it really works. And But I will say this. Margaret Qualley is fantastic. She is. She's, if generally every, speaking. Every single thing you see her in, you're like, wow, she's going to be a big deal. This is another example of that. We've proven that she can carry a movie. Hopefully it only gets better from here because she is definitely... An actor to keep an eye on. Mm. Yeah. So, uh, then uh, we've got uh, just one more movie. We've got the new Netflix comedy, Rosaline. That's right. We do. Uh, it's it's a Hulu comedy. Um, oh, that's right. What did I say? Netflix? You said Netflix. Look, it's it's oh, it's 1 a.m. I'm tired. It's, it's tired. Yeah, okay. it's tired. This is a film directed by uh, Karen Maine, is a director I'm not too familiar with. Uh, mm. She she did a film that I kind of I was kind of fond of called Yes God Yes, which was about a oh. teenage girl who uh, went to sort of a Christian camp and had like a sexual awakening. Oh yeah, but, yeah. I remember you, I remember you telling me about that. I didn't see that one, but yeah. I remember you telling me you really liked that. Yeah, I was that one was a good one. Um, I didn't see Obvious Child, which mm-hmm. was also her. Uh, um, I think she just wrote that though. Oh, she only wrote this. Career. I think okay. she only wrote that. Hold on, let me check here. Yeah, but that was Jillian Robespierre who directed that. Oh, okay. Yeah. Oh, excuse me. Yeah, she, 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 she contributed to the screenplay for it. Oh, uh, she also did a movie called Starstruck, uh, which... Oh, that was a TV series. TV, Sorry. Yeah, There's she, a TV series called Starstruck. Um, yeah. No, no, she's doing Rosaline, and she has fallen uh, right into... Uh, slumber party territory. This yeah. is this is bright, frothy, completely consequence free kind of a romantic comedy, and mm-hmm. it's based on Romeo and Juliet. Uh, there's a scene in this movie where uh, Caitlin Deaver, who plays the t- uh, title character, mm-hmm. uh, wanders into the uh, "Do you bite your thumb at me?" scene, opening scene from Romeo and Juliet. Yeah, where and all of violence breaks violence out. Violence yeah. breaks out. Uh, I do about by my thumb, and they start uh, swinging swords around. And she just sort of like casually strides into the middle and say, "Hey, boys, okay, but just so, like uh, completely American, yeah. put your swords away. You know, we all have the waving your penises around. Put them away. We're gonna be very modern here, and nobody's being threatened." I was reminded of uh, uh, like Heath Ledger's Casanova. Like it's that mm-hmm. level of. of Threatlessness. The, the the whole idea of Rosaline, there's there's two things afoot in Rosaline. One, plot wise, this is a story about the woman Romeo was dating before he met Juliet. Well and the gag hang on. <laughs> Romeo wasn't dating Rosaline. Romeo Romeo had eyes for Rosaline. Ah. Uh, well, they're, here, they're, here we find out they were dating. They, they're yeah. they're go to the with me to the ball, there sups the fair Rosaline whom thou so loved. And uh 
that's uh, the idea was he he went he, to the ball to run into Rosalind. He pined for yeah, her. He was pining for Rosalind. Originally, he pined for her. In this uh, movie, they were dating properly. They were da- a they were dating properly, and also Rosalind is a Capulet in this version. No, she always was. She was always Juliet's cousin. She, mm, Why do you think it was a Capulet party? Why else would Rosalind? Oh be yeah, there? I guess you're right. Yeah. yeah, like distant cousin, like not not like not like the not like the the lead Capulet's daughter. I could not. I'm not looking that up. I'm gonna look that up just so that we can we can. I, 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 was I Rosalind was, a Capulet? Yeah, Boom. Let's was, uh, let's do it. Let's stick it out. Google. Yeah, she's a Capulet. All right. All right. Yeah. It, I, I, and they don't I, make a big thing of it, but yeah. I, I always. I guess I always got the impression that she was like a, like a friend of the family, so she mm. wasn't involved with like the the rivalry. Well, it actually doesn't help the plot very much because the whole thing is I'm in love with Juliet and she's a Capulet. I'm like you're already in love with a Capulet. Yeah, yeah. I guess because it was like a third Capulet once removed, it wasn't that, that big a deal. Yeah, see, that, that but was, when it's like the lead the, Capulet's daughter, I it I, is. I guess I've never said that out loud, but yeah, I always assumed that Rosaline, yeah. who doesn't have any lines, she's not in the play. No, she's just an idea, really. Yeah, uh, yeah. Like that, she was. Like she was Juliet's cousin, but she was like a, a like third party. Like mm-hmm. she was outside of the rivalry. Well, if you'll recall, there was a TV series starring Lashana Lynch mm. uh, called Still Starcross, which is also about, about Rosalind. Ro- yeah, Lashana Lynch plays Rosalind in that, and, and in that uh, one, she's like an adopted member of the Capulet family. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, and that that show, Still Starcross, was an ABC show. Um, well, I thought it was CW. Was CW? it ABC? I think you're right. I think it was ABC. Uh, I think um, you're right. Yeah. But uh, the idea was they they tried to turn. Uh, sort of focus all of the action in uh, Romeo and Juliet toward the sociopolitical stuff. Yeah. About sort of what the rivalry meant, like what it actually meant to Verona at large and what the, yeah. uh, like who these noble people were and how they were connected to the local politicians. Mm-hmm. Uh, all of that stuff was kind of interesting. There's also a lot of really corny, strange things going on. And, yeah, like, like uh, maybe Juliet's yeah, still alive Juliet or a ghost. Still alive. Or, uh, like, oh, God, it's fucking weird. And, and Lady Montague, who's not like in the play a lot. Like, uh, it turns out she was abroad in Scotland and was actually also <laughs> Lady Macbeth, they yeah. reveal that was a little kind of dumb. I uh, like that show. <laughs> I, I like that show too. So it was weird. Uh, this is yeah, we're we're telling the Romeo and Juliet story from the point of view of Rosaline yeah. and how uh, and I love this about this movie. Yeah. Uh, uh, Romeo is just a simp. He is, yeah, he's, uh, Romeo is a dork. He's just this dork. He's like a, a handsome young poet, yeah. but he's like kind of adult yeah and he's not really nice and he has a short attention span which is actually a quality he has in the play i actually it's not something you see a lot in stagings they treat him like this like romantic this movie has romeo's number like he's Mm. he's i hand like he's handsome you understand having a crush on him you don't want to be married to him no no, (laughs) you don't like but that but that's one of the gags is that we're seeing this from rosaline's perspective and when there's a plot point where because of her father trying to set her up with another man, she is late to the party where Romeo is supposed to be, and he ends up meeting her cousin Juliet instead. She's played by Isabella Merced, and they fall in love. And then Rosaline's like, "Well, I have to break that shit up." Yeah. And then that's the movie, basically. But, but then, the other, uh, sorry. But the, the the plot continues apace where Juliet moves in temporarily with Rosaline. Yeah. And now she has to sort of do like an anti Roxanne. It's it's basically my best friend's wedding, mm. but with Rosaline and the Julia Roberts role. Um, the the other element that that's the basic pitch here is that it's about Shakespeare, but it's a very modern, laid back dialogue, and it's basically mm. like th- this gag: we're gonna do Shakespeare, but we're just gonna like 
kind of do it all casual and flip the way people talk today. Mm. This goes back to almost the origin of talkies. Because if you go back to the movie called The Hollywood Review of 1929. Where they do that jokey Romeo and Juliet. Yeah. yeah. They actually, I think it's Norma Shearer and, and mm. someone else. They're doing Romeo and Juliet and they do the whole balcony scene. And then the director comes up and says, hey, everyone, the studio heads say all oh, this old dialogue isn't like, isn't down with the mm. kids these days. So, that, so can we hip version. So yeah. they do it with the modern slang of 1929. It's the exact same joke as a lot of the jokes in Rosaline, which is basically like there's a bit where Romeo right at the beginning, he goes up to Rosaline on her balcony and he tells her all the same stuff he tells Juliet later. Mm. And then she says, "Why are you talking like that?" And she's like, I, "Poetry? I thought you'd like it." Like, "Oh no, it's nice. It's just really weird." <laughs> Caitlin Deaver, <laughs> Caitlin Deaver knows how to sell that shit. Yeah, Caitlin Deaver is the star. She she's just right on this film's wavelength. Yeah, she knows how to play uh, this kind of comedy in that she takes the character very seriously, but the film itself is actually mm. uh, so light as to be almost insubstantial. And she yeah. knows how to uh, bring that comedic energy. It's a yeah. it's a comedy film. It is. Uh, it's it's Romeo, a broad comedy. It's, film. it's Romeo and Juliet, but the tragedy is is not part of this. In fact, mm, they're, uh, they they try to talk their way they, out of the tragedy multiple yeah, they, times. They, they kind of like rework the plot a lot in this movie, uh, and, and and I I appreciate the way they try to rewalk. rework. I, I'm actually fine with, I'm not going to hold Romeo and Juliet sacred here. I actually am fine with all the changes that they made to the plot. Some of them are improvements. uh, There's there's a bit at the end, like the very last scene mm. is the funniest scene in the movie for me. And I don't want to ruin it, (laughs) but it just made me go, okay, I really am glad we put that in there. Because that means that you read Romeo and Juliet and you got what you were supposed Mm. to get out of it. And you led us in one direction, but you knew it was always a joke. You did it good. It's it's the Romeo and Juliet story. Uh, it's based on a very superficial interpretation of the Romeo and Juliet True. story. It's, True. The it's nuance based, is gone. Based on, you know, it, it's a good uh, introduction to the material for a kid who hasn't, like, ha- has only read the Cliff's Notes so far. You've got the uh, gist. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. So it's like, oh, I know what the Romeo and Juliet story is. We're going to play with it a little bit. And I, yeah. I appreciate the film's playfulness. Everyone knows the broad I, uh, strokes. I think Caitlin Deaver is great. Uh, I think her love interest is pretty boring. Uh, He's likable and handsome, yeah. and that's all you really need. Yeah, I, I, I love what they did with Romeo. I wish it were funnier. That's my problem with this movie. Yeah, there, I just didn't laugh that much. I smirked uh, a lot. I didn't actually laugh. Yeah, like like a, the bubbliness is enough to get a smirk out of you. But yeah, yeah there's no, no no good guffaws in it. No, not really. Uh, even when the filmmakers are giving an earnest effort, there's a stoner character in this movie. Oh, yeah. It's like, hey, I've got to let you in through the gate, man. Do you recognize me? Sure, you're that girl. No, I'm Rosaline. Right. Like that kind of... Yeah. The know, gag, almost a Bill and Ted kind of character. The, the gag right at the beginning, and, you, and if you know Romeo and Juliet, you know where this is going. Like, from the first time you meet that guy is... He's the messenger. Yeah, the one who messes things up. Yeah, the whole plot of Romeo and Juliet only fucks up because the messenger sucks. And it turns out he's just like this dopey... Like Jane Silent Bob type, mm. and like that's why that and part's kind of funny. That yeah. idea is funny, and that they yeah. try to make, but everything they do with that character is just death. Yeah, because it it, it's, it's like this desperate grab at trying to make well, this hip character. The, it just doesn't, just doesn't. The characters funny. always stop to regard him and his funniness. Yeah, yeah, and that's a lot of it. Like this movie is very aware of when it's doing something funny, and it stops to like just sort of like. Caitlin Deaver has to do a lot of reacting to mm. things that are supposed to be funny. And they're not actually allowed to just be funny. Like, I feel like this movie is 
so self-aware of its wittiness that it doesn't take its story seriously enough. I know it needs to be satirical, mm. but it doesn't take its internal story seriously enough for that comedy to provide enough of a counterpoint to anything that's actually serious for the comedy to really land. There aren't enough straight people in the story. Everyone is actually pretty much in on the joke. Even someone like... like Romeo is probably the best example of someone who's actually like doing it right. Because he's the joke and the movie doesn't know it. Isabella Merced, who I think is one of the best young actors of her generation. I love her. I think she's completely charismatic. Her character is weird. Because depending on the needs of the scene, she's either incredibly innocent and naive, incredibly intelligent and wise beyond her years, or the kind of person who makes the worst and stupidest choices imaginable. They can't find that character. They, they, she is pushed around by the plot. Yeah, well, and, and, and that sucks for Isabella Merced because she's playing this really inconsistent rendition of Julia. Yeah, and, and that would have read if, uh, if the character were actually 13. And I think yeah, they, aged, big... and they aged up the characters in this, mm-hmm. or at least they, yeah. they didn't, but they just hired a older actors so they look older anyway yeah uh, and, and that's a little bit of like if, i mean you if, need to because otherwise it's super gross i i suppose so i mean you know? I, that is what Roman and juliet is though it's 16 I, and 13 and they're i'm dating, aware of and, that uh, but it's super gross and we need to yeah. age that shit up yeah so yeah. uh but in in so doing you're losing that sort of 13 year old naivete yeah uh I saw a film just recently uh, called uh, Catherine Called Birdie. It's oh, yeah. Lena Dunham's movie, and that's yeah. another sort of uh, light, frothy, set in medieval times yeah. uh, kind of movie. And that movie actually does a lot of the same beats that Rosaline does, but I feel like it does it with a lot more uh, humor and humanity. That's yeah. actually a much more energetic film. It's a lot more interesting than this one. Mm-hmm. This one feels a little bit too polished. Yeah. Uh, it, it doesn't have sort of the, the messy emotions that are in this. Uh, I have no issues with them trotting over Romeo and Juliet. Oh, please do. Uh, yeah, Romeo and Juliet. First of all, Shakespeare can stand whatever interpretation you want. Shakespeare yeah. is, is immortal at this point. And, yeah. uh, and Romeo and Juliet is a play I'm not particularly fond of. No, in fact, in it's taken too canon. seriously, I think, yeah, a lot of the time. I, I, yeah. I feel like the foolishness of the characters is something that I see in the script a lot that isn't really put into to a lot of the productions I've seen. No, a lot of the productions of Romeo mm. and Juliet think of, they buy the line mm. that this is the greatest tragedy ever, but they're not actually thinking about why. And it's not mm. because these two perfect lovers were, had their lives ruined by tragedy. It's because they threw their lives away for a crush. Yeah. Yeah. Like they, they were young they, and they, they threw themselves tragedy, into things yeah, their, unwisely. Their youth is their tragic flaw. And that's, yeah. that's not really, Focused upon very it's rarely like, treated mm. the way it needs to be treated in the yeah. text. Yeah, I agree. And this this movie actually gets that, mm. but unfortunately, I don't think it's really funny enough to really nail it. Otherwise, and it's, it's watchable. Yeah. Like I, it's I not like, it's not like it's not like unpleasant or anything like that. It's just I saw the trailer for this. Mm. The trailer has better comedic timing than the film. Well, like, it's edited differently. If you watch like yeah. if you watch like this two and a half minute trailer that they put out, like a lot of jokes that fall pretty flat in the movie are actually funny in the trailer because 
you don't have all of this like downtime to just sort of get used to the world. And so there's a there's a gag, and it's in the trailers. So I don't feel bad about it, and it's also in Romeo and Juliet. So I don't feel bad about it. Where um, Juliet tells Rosaline, "Well, I can't be with Romeo, so I'm going to fake my own death. I'm going to drink a potion that will make people, everyone think I'm dead." And Rosaline's like, "That's the worst idea I have ever heard anyone take." And Ju- and Juliet's like, "Oh, really?" And she's sort of like falling asleep, like, "You took it already?" <laughs> like that's a funny gag. And in the trailer, it's great. And in a vacuum, it's great. In the context of the scene, mm. it's actually, like, more obvious all the way through. Like, the the, the gag just doesn't play. Uh, it's a funny yeah, yeah. idea. I'm sure it's on paper. It's great. The other thing I want to mention in this movie before we move on, because I think we've kind of covered it. Uh, another person who deserves to mention we didn't yet. Mini Driver's funny in this movie. Oh, Mini Driver plays the nurse. Yeah. And unlike the original, where she was playing, like, a wet nurse. She was playing, yeah. like, you know, the person who, like, nursed her as a baby. Mm. Because... Where the Juliet's comes mo- from, yeah. yeah, yeah. Where Juliet's mom wasn't going to do that; she had a wet nurse. Um, in this one, the gag is she went to college and was a registered nurse, but now this is the best <laughs> job she can get, and she's super annoyed by that constantly. Yeah, where every time someone's like, "I have the plague," you don't have the plague. How do you know? Because I'm a registered nurse, <laughs> and that gag is actually pretty funny. Uh, it's not. I, it's, it's not the most accurate reading or anything, no, no, but it's a funny gag. That, that, and Mini Driver a, plays it well. That's a gag from like an old Carry On movie. I it's know. like uh, Carry On Juliet. It's like, yeah. uh, how how do you know I'm not sick because I'm a registered n- and like the, the mm. nurse would have like the 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 um, candy striper outfit oh, yeah. with the would, little hats. They, they don't overdo it like that. I feel like Mini Driver would have starred in this movie in the '90s though, and would have been really great at it. She would have played Rosalind. Yeah, like know? back when she in like her Circle of Friends era or um, whatever, like that. Oh, she was so great in that movie. Yeah, the, the, it's clearly a child of uh, that era when we were doing these sort of hipster reinterpretations of like a lot of classic lit yeah uh, the, the 10 things i hate about you 10 things kind of i hate vibe, about yeah. you but also something like uh the, the chaucer film a knight's tale with oh, another yeah. heath ledger movie uh, which was you know set in the 1300s but is actually incredibly modern and yeah you know, they, they, they use like queen music yeah, and everything queen music uh, I'm, I'm going to make my own armor i'm going to have a logo on it and it's like the, the nike, nike logo yeah. what a what a clever way to work uh product yeah. placement into a film set in the 14th century it's a clever joke they made a lot of money yeah it's yeah. a money thing it's otherwise it's a pretty good movie though it's, it's fun it's really fun it's a good slumber party movie it's a yeah, movie and, and it's a this, movie that's like great for teens it's yeah, awesome I feel like this one is like it's in that camp but mm-hmm. it's not as good as that it doesn't have no. that, that kind of uh, wild abandon it's that so I think close. a lot of those movies do it's so close it comes so close to being really great mm-hmm. and ends up being just kind of okay yeah anyway on that note let's do a review roundup uh, real real fast our scale is C- minus to C+, plus. C- minus is below average those are movies we don't recommend maybe they're terrible maybe they're just eh uh, then there's a C a C is average mediocre some good some bad just kind of okay all around better for one audience than another and then finally a C+, plus is a genuine recommendation it's above average we like it we want you to see it on that note where do you put Rosaline? Uh, it, it's uh, it's a C okay. like, it's not a complete wash uh, but it's it's definitely not great. I, I'm I'm gonna give it a high C minus. I am. Oh, I think yeah. it just it, it doesn't do enough with the premise. Mm-hmm. Although the people inside of it are all clearly having fun, and I think there are definitely funny bits. Overall, I'm again. I think you if you love Romeo and Juliet, you're gonna be a little disappointed by how unclever this is. Yeah. And if you don't love Romeo and Juliet, I don't know why you're watching it. <laughs> so it's just kind of. Eh. 
Um, so maybe, yeah, maybe you want to send up. You want it skewered a little bit. I wish it was skewered harder. I guess yeah, is yeah. my point here. Uh, stars at noon. Also a C minus, but with a qualifier, Margaret Qualley is giving a C plus performance. Great. She's really really great. The movie just can't hold her up, especially her co star. So bummer. Uh, decision to leave. Uh, a C. It's it's a, a good good effective noir. I feel mm. like it it could use a lot more. Uh, it could have been a lot tighter yeah. and. Uh, Maybe be a little bit more clever about the way the relationships play out. It feels hmm. like, uh, like I said, it, it was a, a style exercise. Fair it's Park Chan-wook trying to do a, sh- uh, a Shakespeare, a Hitchcock movie, <laughs> and uh, you know, succeeding in you know fulfilling that style, but not really transcending. I, I appreciate your point about it maybe being longer than it needs to be. That's probably fair, but I actually really thought the central relationship, whether it's a romance or a cat and mouse thing or whatever, I don't want to ruin it, um, is actually kind of refreshingly frank and mature in a lot of ways uh, for this kind of genre in particular. And I thought as a character piece, especially for the detective, um, it's really, really strong. And I actually was very moved by it. Okay. So it's also a, a murder mystery I very much enjoyed and the way it was laid out and all the detail that was put into it. So I'm going to give it a C+. I really, really liked it a lot. Uh, let's see here. Uh, Dark Glasses. I'm going to give it a C+. Right. It is far from D'Argento's most memorable work, but it works on its own merits. Uh, it's a solidly told thriller. It's actually refreshingly uh, um, uh, mature and reserved in a lot of ways. There's some good performances in it, and the score kills. So it's it's a genuine recommendation, although with the caveat that if you can't bring yourself to watch anything with Ozzy Argento, you should know she's in it. Smaller role, but she's in it. Mm. Uh, and then lastly, Halloween Ends. Hello, uh... I hate to be boring, but also another C. Um, okay. I, I, oh, really? I thought you go C plus to this. I thought you were higher on it than that. Well, it, it it's not a solid film all the way through. I, well, I, I think averaged that, out. I, th- I think the the sort of slasher stuff does feel a little bit rote. I like some of the violence, but it, it just doesn't. Uh, it's not super you know original in terms of its violence. Uh, I, I liked all of the the ideas up at the front though, where mm. Haddonfield, Illinois, is this oh, this like haunted place. Yeah. All of that stuff I thought was pretty fun. Uh, that it had to become a slasher movie was almost a disappointment. Ah, fair enough. Uh, yeah, I I want to like it as much as you do, and no. even you only give it a C. I'm going to give it a C minus. Mm. I have no animosity towards it. I think it took. Oh, no, I think no, it had no. some big ideas. I don't think they came together terribly well. I think it was weirdly noncommittal, and unfortunately, I think the ultimate ending. Uh, and this is the bigger sin for me, just felt unconvincing. Like, I didn't mm. buy it. Like, the way that it all happened and the impact it allegedly has. Uh, so, yeah, I don't think it quite works. But it's still a Halloween movie, and I'm, I have a lot of affection for the franchise, even the crappy installments. So, like, I would still, like, watch it again and probably get to have <laughs> some fun. But, like, I can't in good conscience say that it's a good Halloween movie. I don't yeah, think okay. it quite gets there. Uh, so that is that. That is our, those uh, are our film- movies. Those are our movies that we reviewed. We reviewed the movie films. Uh, we'll be back next week with the review. Oh, I think Black Adam finally comes out. Yeah, b- uh, Black Adam is another. It's a he. He's a Shazam. Yes, he's one of the Shazams. Um, he's, he's one of the Shazams. He Shazams uh, quite often the, and quite the, hard. Of of the of the uh, of the Georgetown Shazams. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yes. It's a, there's a Shazam. Uh, there's yeah. a new Martin McDonough movie coming out next week. Oh, yeah, week. The there's Banshees a, of Inishirin. Yeah. There's a, a, a Halloween uh, stop-motion animated film coming out in theaters next week from Netflix. Oh, is Netflix uh, been out in theaters, a, too? Uh, called Wendell and Wade or something like that. Yeah, um, it's, a, it's a new film uh, Jordan Peele Jordan worked Peele on it as well. Jordan Peele produced it, yeah. Um, yeah. I think I, it, I might have written it as well. Yeah. 
Uh, so the, the, a lot of cool stuff coming out next yeah. week, and we look forward to reviewing it. Thank you, everybody, for joining us. If you want to listen to this show and all of our other shows ad-free and get a lot of exclusive other shows as well, you can totally do so over at our Patreon, patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network. You can also listen to Whitney Seibold doing a spirited rendition of the oh Telltale God. Heart <laughs> in a segment we call Public Domain Theater. Where every once in a while we might read something from the public domain at you, and it's really fun. He gives a really good performance. Oh well, thank you. I really like it a lot. It's it's great. It's fun. It's for patrons only, Uh, but all patrons get it, even one dollar a month. Uh, You can also vote for future episodes and stuff. It's very cool. Thank you to all of our patrons, without whom this show and all of our other shows would not exist. You mean the world to us. If you want to talk about anything we discussed in this episode or anything else you want us to talk about. Our email address is letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. And if you email us at letters at criticallyacclaimed.net, we might read your letter on an upcoming episode of our podcast, We've Got Mail. Or if you want to practically guarantee your letter gets read, you can send us a physical piece of mail to our P.O. box. We like that. Send it in longhand. Yeah, it's 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 you'd, it'd be a weird situation if we didn't read something you took the all the trouble to mail. So uh, our mailing address is uh, uh, Critically Acclaimed Network, P.O. Box 641565 Los Angeles, California 90064. Mm-hmm. We're also on Twitter at Critic Acclaim. I am at William DeBiani. At Whitney Seibold. And never forget everyone's a critic. I'm sorry, what?